result of the outbreak, your city or entire region may be endangered by a lethal agent. If conditions at your location make this a possibility, you need to consider staying in place until the threat has subsided or blown over. It's in our DNA. We choose the way of earth. We choose the right people we are. We know the difference between the reality of freedom and the illusion of freedom. There's a way to live with earth and a way not to live with earth. We choose the way of earth. Yamiske no swagwego. Ni gyaso titoyo. Onundawaka ni ya. Ithaca ni kanonge. Hello, everybody. My name is Ansley Jamison, and this is the Ongwehunwe podcast. The original people. And by that, I mean the original people of North America, Turtle Island. I first want to acknowledge that. This podcast was made possible through an opportunity provided through the Office of Engaged Cornell at Cornell University. I will be your host through this podcast. My name is Ansley Jemison. I currently work at Cornell University in the Office of Academic Diversity Initiatives. I am a member of the Seneca Nation. I am of the Wolf Clan. And I'm from the Allegheny Territory of Western New York. This podcast has been a long time coming for me, I guess, in a lot of ways. It's been a goal of mine. I graduated from Syracuse University with a degree in communications, and here I am some 20 plus years later, finally putting that degree to work, I guess, as they would say. Uh, Please understand that I am not a professional sound person, so please bear with me. As I get better and as I work through this, I will improve the sound quality of this podcast. Truth be told, this is our first time, second time, taking this equipment out of the box, plugging it all in, and finally rolling out with, uh, you know, what this podcast has yet to become. The goal of this podcast is to tell stories to introduce you to people that you may not otherwise come across or engage with. I want to say that I've been a very fortunate person in my life. I've had a lot of very interesting experiences. I've had a lot of very challenging moments in my life. But I think each of those experiences and each of those challenges have brought me to this place where I am today. The person that I have brought on as my first guest for this podcast is a person who's been a very integral part of my life, a very important person to me. He's been a mentor. He's been a teacher. He's been a friend. But more importantly, he's been a father. My hotney. G. Peter Jemison, the Peter Jemison. To many different people, he means a lot of different things. But to me, He's my father. And because of him, I feel that and I can say that a lot of the different experiences, the people I've met, the places I've gone, I can trace back to him 
being a part of all of those. So today, I have brought my father on. I've twisted his arm. I finally sat him down, put a microphone in front of him, and it's not something that hasn't been an uncommon sight for me growing up with him. He's a person that's spent a lot of time in front of microphones, given a lot of perspectives, and finally, I've wrestled him down, and I'm going to start to ask some of those questions about what it is and who he is. But the thing that I felt was the most important was to kind of ground us and kind of center us in terms of what this podcast is. It's an indigenous podcast. I've been listening to podcasts for a number of years now. I came to realize that there wasn't a lane for indigenous voice, the indigenous perspective. And I guess I was bold enough, maybe dumb enough, to think that, well, maybe I can just do that. Well, here I am, using my communications degree from, Cornell, or from Syracuse University. And hopefully, through the people that I know, providing access to others to get an understanding of what the indigenous lens is. And what do I mean by that? I mean perspective. I mean, what do Native people think of this world around us? We weren't there when the colonists all arrived here, but yet we were, we were born into it. We grew up in this. And it's been interesting for all of us. There's been many times that I've been in many places that I've been the only, the only Native person in the room. And looking at things from a different lens, what are all these people doing here? What are they thinking about? What guides them? What makes them act that way? Why do I think they're different than me? Why do I feel I'm different than them? There's this concept that we grow up with, and it's actually a wampum belt. And it's the two-world wampum, they call it. And it's a story about two people traveling down the river of life. One's in a canoe, and the other one's in a ship. And the story is told to us is that we're not supposed to try to get into the other one's boat and try to steer their lives. So the native people are supposed to stay in their canoe, and the non-native people are supposed to stay in their ship. However, I think we all realize and understand that maybe this isn't quite the reality of today, that some of us sometimes travel with feet in both of those canoes. And if you've ever tried to stand up in a boat while it's in the water, you can understand the challenges that that poses. And the same sort of metaphor plays itself out in a lot of our lives, indigenous people today, having our feet in two boats, in two vessels. But one of the things that I wanted to have my father do, and we went back and forth about it and we talked about it, and I asked him to, dig, to give a gnonio. The Gnonyok is our Thanksgiving address. It translates to mean the words before all else. And this is how we open up any of our gatherings, any of our ceremonial practices, any of our events, any of our community gatherings. And it's an acknowledgement and a thanksgiving of all the things that have been provided for us here on earth. I asked my father to do this in the language because I want you all to hear the language for one. But I also want you all to hear a translation of it so that you understand 
what some of the thought processes and what some of the thinking are, what that perspective is. And I'm asking my father, after he gives the Ganonyok, to then talk about how the Ganonyok has guided his life, how he makes decisions, how he's traveled in different spaces, and how these things have been a part of his life and how he's enacting those today in his life. So he's going to explain to you a little bit about his position on providing the Ganonio in this way, in this manner. And I respect it immensely because I think it's the right position to take for how and why he has a little bit of apprehension in terms of providing this. But we're going to do this in the most respectful way possible. And I feel that, you know, we're going to try to be as caretakers, stewards of this as best we can. And we're doing it with complete respect and honor for all, all other people. So without further ado, I'm going to ask my father to introduce himself in the language, tell you a little bit about who he is, and then I'm going to let him go ahead and... Um, take over from there, and do the Ganonyoke how he feels best in doing it. Understand that this podcast is, you know, it's a little bit rough shot. It's a little bit, you know, rough around the edges at times. It's not crisp. It's not perfect. But again, I think that that's a lot about who we are as people. We all have our warts. We all have our flaws. We all have our challenges. And I'm going to provide for you the best that I can in terms of getting this insiders look a little bit into the indigenous lens, the people of Turtle Island, the original people, the Ongwehunwe. I've met a lot of different people in my life, and they've all had a lot of different influences and effects on my life. And for them, I'm thankful. I'm grateful, in fact. And I appreciate every one of them. I've tagged a lot of my friends, and I announced on Facebook that I was going to step out and do this sort of project. And the amount of encouragement and acknowledgement that I received was overwhelming. So I've got a lot of weight on my shoulders right now. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm not going to lie. But I'm excited to embark on this journey. And again, I just want to thank the Office of Engage Cornell for this opportunity. And along the way... I will be sharing this with a much broader audience and hopefully that this thing grows some legs and it travels throughout the world. When I did make my announcement on Facebook, I had people from Australia. I had people from other parts of the country reaching out to me, acknowledging me, saying thank you, looking forward to it, excited to hear what's going to be said. And so I've been stockpiling conversations in my head, stockpiling questions in my head, but also trying to do some research as well before I go into this. I'm not going to try to just wing it every time, but I want this to be organic. I want this to be something that's free-flowing, a conversation as comfortable as it can be with a set of headphones and a microphone in your face. But more than anything, I just want to hear some real stories. I want you all to understand that Indigenous people are still here, we're still relevant, we've always been here, and we'll always be here. We are a part of this. 
And maybe we have some perspective and some answers as to how we move forward together as people. So without further ado, I'd like to acknowledge and welcome in Mr. Peter Jemison. I give thanks that all of you are well. I've been given a name from the clan that I belong to. I belong to the Heron clan, the Heron clan of the People call it in English Seneca Nation. We refer to ourselves as Onondawatga, meaning the people of the Great Hill. And for the last 34 years, I have lived and worked at a New York State historic site called Ganondagan, which was once a town with 150 bark longhouses occupied by Seneca and other people who had been adopted in, or who chose to come and live among us. And um, I have been the manager of this historic site as it has developed. So my son asked me if I would offer the Ganonio. And I said, uh, first I would like to say words in English so that the listeners will know what I am talking about when I use some of our language. And so we, we say that we have gathered in this place and then we are going to turn our attention to the people and we're going to give thanks for the well-being of the people who are with us. And that in this case, we hadn't heard of anyone who was unable to join us due to illness. And so we direct our thoughts to our Creator and, and we give thanks for the well-being of the people. We have exchanged our greetings of thanksgiving to each other, our greetings of maybe for someone we're meeting for the first time and our greeting to those we consider our longtime friends. That's what happens within our different uh, gathering places. And uh, after we've done that, we're acknowledging to the Creator that we're going to pull our minds together as one and direct our thoughts to our Creator and give thanks for the well-being of the people. And then next, we mention that uh, our Mother, the Earth, is supporting our feet all the days of our life as we're walking about and that our Mother, the Earth, is also bringing forth those gifts that are required of the living creatures, and including the human beings, here on Earth. And our Mother Earth is providing for us, just as our Mother provided for us when we were brought into the world. Again, we direct our attention to our Creator who made it so, who created our Mother Earth, and we give thanks to our Creator that this Earth is still sustaining the life on it. 
And again, we put our minds together now as one and offer these words. And then we turn our thoughts to the water. And there are many different types of water. We begin with the acknowledgement that there's water that is flowing over the surface of the earth. And these can be rivers and creeks and streams, brooks, however you want to term it, but it's the flowing water. And then we acknowledge that also there are ponds and there are lakes. And when I'm speaking in English, I mention that in the water there are the fish, there are different types of fish, there are reptiles, there are water bugs. There are very tiny forms of life that all live in these different waters. And that water is really essential to life. Water is essential to living things. And so we give thanks, and even we put in our thoughts the great salt bodies of water, and water that comes in the form of rain to replenish the springs, replenish the ponds and the lakes, and direct our thoughts now to the Creator and give thanks. A great big thanks for these waters that exist here on our earth. And we say, and now our minds are one. And if people are listening, they then say something like, no, meaning yes, it is well. They're simply confirming that they believe that this is important to mention, this particular gift. In my version of this, I next mention medicine plants, that there are plants that grow very close to the earth, to the surface of the earth. And these medicine plants, we are told, are there to interrupt small illnesses. And we also say when we're talking about the medicine plants that we are acknowledging that there are those among us who know how to use these medicines. And we are grateful that this is so, that people can help one another with these medicine plants. And so there might be the Osquaita, there might be the Hethon, and there are many, many other kinds of medicines that our people know of and continue to use. And we direct our thoughts to the Creator that even some of these very small plants, they have a purpose. And some of them, they may be a medicine for the birds or they may be a medicine for the animals. They too know what they need. But we give thanks to our Creator for providing these medicine plants to us. And now our minds are one. And then I pick out one particular medicine plant that is special to us and when it comes again to the earth and we see it, we hold a gathering, a ceremony, to acknowledge the arrival of this relative. And we refer to it as the wild strawberry in English. And we refer to the juice that can come from these berries. We think of that as medicine. We know this has come about because the earth has begun to warm up. We are seeing more daylight, and this light allows these medicine plants to grow. 
And so when this strawberry becomes available to us, we receive word that it's time for us to gather back in our longhouses and to offer thanks to our Creator in the proper way and to enjoy again the taste of this wonderful berry, this wonderful gift. And so then we direct our thoughts now to the Creator and, and give thanks that this has happened again and we see it as the beginning of this cycle of life, growing, returning. And we say again, and now our minds are one. And then next, we mentioned that there have been foods placed upon this earth for the use of the people. For us, there are three that we refer to occasionally as the three sisters, those that sustain us. And there are many other foods that are here for our use and our enjoyment. But in particular, we have been agricultural people. We have been caring for seeds and planting seeds and taking care of these gardens that we create in order that we might enjoy again the corn, the beans, and the squash. And that they help one another when they're growing together. They have a way of supporting one another and they give to us sustenance. And so we turn to our Creator and we give thanks that we have seen these foods that He has provided for us. And we join our minds together now as one and we give thanks. I like to mention next that there are four leggeds running about. It might be the squirrel I saw in my backyard sitting up on his hind legs. It might be the coyote I saw walk across the backyard. It might be the tiniest one, the mole or the mouse. And then it might be the one that's the leader, the white-tailed deer. I saw a large eight-point buck walk across my backyard puff out his neck, as they say he was rutting. But all of these four-leggeds, and there are many, many more, they have a purpose. They're here, placed here by our Creator for our needs and for the needs of others that have to rely upon them for food. And so now, Again, I direct my thoughts to the Creator and I give, light, give thanks for the four-leggeds that has been provided for our needs. And with this, we collectively say, and now our minds are one. And then we acknowledge that there are saplings, bushes. There are short trees. And then there are woods and there are forests. And in all of these different places, there are various kinds of trees that have a purpose. 
Some of them have been the material for our home. Some of them bring forth a gift like the apple or the peach. Some of them bring forth the one we call the leader of that, of the trees, the sugar maple, brings forth a sap early in the spring when the earth is just beginning to warm up, when the snow has left moisture in the ground and that moisture is drawn up by the tree and then we can tap that tree and obtain that sap which can then be boiled down into a syrup, made into a sugar to sweeten our foods. And this is a very good medicine. And when that arrives, we gather again together and we acknowledge and send forth words of thanks to our Creator for this gift coming again. And so for all of the trees, for all of the woods and the forests, we gather our thoughts together now, we the human beings, and we direct them to the Creator and we say we give thanks and now our minds are one. And then I'm going to mention the winged creatures, those that fly overhead. Their colors, they beautify our world and each of them has a different song, a different voice. And they use that, too, to give their form of thanks. We've said that when we hear the robin offering his thanks in his way, we are to listen to the cadence of the way he says it because it teaches us how we can deliver our giving thanks, our thanksgiving. So the birds are teachers to us. Some of them have provided food to us. We have a leader among the birds. We think of them as the eagle. He flies the highest. He has the keenest eyesight. A very important bird. And somewhat rare around where we live. We don't see them every day. So at this time, we direct our thoughts to the Creator and we give thanks for the winged creatures. And now we say, and now our minds are one. And then we mention the wind, the wind that comes from the four directions. We are aware of the amazing power of the wind to scrape things right off the surface of the earth. It can have a very destructive effect. But the wind is essential for a fresh breath of air. And that warm and gentle breeze that we feel when the earth begins to warm up again after a long winter is such a welcome blessing. We turn our thoughts to the Creator and we give thanks for the wind. And we say, and now our minds are one. And the next uh, force that we acknowledge, we acknowledge the thunder beings. Early on in the spring, we listen for the arrival of these thunder beings. 
We want to hear it roll all the way across the land. We who live near these big bodies of water, the lakes, we say the thunder rolls across the lake and from west to east, they come from the west and we listen for them. And when we hear them and they sound very strong and powerful, we take time out of our day to acknowledge and give thanks that we're hearing them again because they are announcing that rain is coming. And this rain is so important to all living things. And we say, the lightning has a role to play too. The lightning is holding down forces that are best left within the earth. So we acknowledge the lightning as being important. And we think of this rain and this lightning and this thunder as breaking the will of the winter, that old man winter that has been gripping us for so long. And so we roll our thoughts together now as one and we say, we give thanks for the thunder beings at this time. And then the next thing we mention is our elder brother, the sun. And we say of our elder brother, he is a great warrior. He is doing a very big job. He is making it just warm enough that we can survive on this earth. And making it possible for the living plants to grow because of their need for sun, for the daytime light, which our elder brother provides. And he makes it that we have a day. He makes a journey across the sky. And we acknowledge and we give thanks for this job that our elder brother has been doing from the time the Creator set it in motion, set the world in motion. We acknowledge and we give thanks. And we say, and now our minds are one. And then we acknowledge and give thanks that we have a nighttime orb referred to commonly by us as our grandmother, our grandmother the moon. I like to spend the time to mention that our grandmother gives to all women a cycle by which they can bring forth life into this world. And therefore, our grandmother is connected to the women and to the children. Our grandmother has other responsibilities. She controls the tides on the earth. That's very important. And in addition, we used our grandmother for setting our ceremonial cycle. The observation of our grandmother has been the way in which we knew in which season we are and what comes during that season, what comes to fruition, what grows, what do we see appear. So we give thanks at this time 
for our grandmother, the moon, and we say, and now our minds are one. And then next I would mention that all about our grandmother are the stars. There's the Milky Way. We are set to, we should observe the Milky Way. We see it as a path to our Creator's world. I've heard it said there's one path that is for those who have cultivated good minds and love, and then there's another path for those who have not. And the one path, it's kind of narrow, and the other is broad, and with many footprints traveling over it. But we are directed to remember the importance of love for one another. These are part of our instructions. Be good to one another. And so leaving our grandmother and our stars, I turn our thought, my thoughts to the, I would call them the messengers who came from our creator's world, who were sent to earth to help human beings at a time when we needed help, at a time when we were at a low point of our existence. First three messengers, they appeared to a man. In English, we refer to him as Handsome Lake. They came with guidance for Handsome Lake at a time when he was suffering, at a time when the only thing he could do was lie in his bed and give thanks for what he saw out through his smoke hole. And the messengers, they heard his voice and they listened. But then they imparted to him what I would call a prophecy. On the one hand, it was a vision of where we were at the time, and then it was a vision of the world that was yet to come, a prediction of things to come. Along the way, these three messengers and our prophet Handsome Lake encountered a fourth messenger, this messenger turned his hands so that the so that the person handsome lake could see them and he saw that these hands had been penetrated that they had holes in the hands in his palms now handsome lake was given this instruction that he had to spread this message that was shared with him by these messengers. And we say of these messengers, they're looking after us. They have their hands on our shoulders as we travel about, so no harm will come to us. And Handsome Lake, he agreed that he would share this message. We refer to that as the good word. Some say the good mind. He would share this message as long as he could. And we're fortunate that others have picked it up since he is gone, and they have carried it on. And so we still hear this recitation. Now, in these things that I have just mentioned, it is the Creator who has made it so. And so in all of the thoughts that I have been directing, 
I want to acknowledge the Creator's hand. And in this, I want to acknowledge the Creator for giving us, at a time when we were in such desperate need, guidance, a prophecy, a direction, and a beautiful message. And so what I have done, I began on the earth and I made my way along a path into the sky world, into the creator's land, acknowledging individual things, groups of things. And if I left something out, it wasn't my intention. It can happen that I will forget from time to time something I intended to say. But today, for the responsibility I was asked to take on, I have done the best that I could to remember the things that we should be thankful for and to acknowledge them to our Creator that we are thankful. And so I will say a few words, as my son has asked me to do, And I have a lot of credit to give to my teachers who over the years have helped me. And there's still more I must do to learn and say it correctly. Pronunciation is very important. I work at that. Dendwadanonyo, Dendwanonyo, Nisangwayandatse, Ne indeed was awak, ne ni yungwe dagi, o chakwatanonyo, nangat winisade, noja nukton hejuhe. Ani ho ne sangwa yatse, wineza dad, ganongs hat non di ye, ganongs hat non di ye, non as saganancho we. Wadon etinoe, Deogwen Sitokan Sako, Yoinza de Ne Haikwa, Ganegadanyo, O Neget Gaso, O Negatan Jongwe, Ganya de Danyo, O Neganoska Guego, He Yakwaiwa Jantwin, O Jakwatanonyo, O Neganoska Guego, Nangat Winisede, Sanguayat Dizon. Ne Haigua, De Wenon Danon de Joheko, O Jetinonio, O Neon, O Saita, O Nyos Hako, Nangat Winisede, No Janook, Don Hedjohe. Ne haigua, anonquas hat gaguego, o jagwata nonio. Ne ne, seesa o chiston darts hat, onnonquas hat, o jagwata nonio, nangat winis hede, no januk don hejohe. Dani doko, nangat winis hede, de went on den on de joheko. O neon, o sight da o nyos hekko, 
ojetinonyo. Dani doko, nengat winisede, gahado wahta, anankwas hat ni genyakaitko, ojakwatanonyo. Oskawaye, johade, nengat winisede, okanonyo, nojanuk da onhejohe. Dani doko, ganyot da sa, ganyot da wanas, hati wadajit da ge, de yano de sanjays sanjays. Okanonyo nengat winisade, nojanuk da onhejohe. Dani doko, di ya winye, oyo wana di ya winye. Ne haigwa nengat winisade, he gak when squa, tina dakwa, hati when no de jace, heat no co. O jog what a non yo nan get when he said, Nate o negase co. O jog what a non yo, no janook do on head you he. Donny Ducko Sadwatsi and the and deko o jagwatanonyo no januk to onhejohe. Nene, itiso tsoika gakwa o jatinonyo. Dane dako one known to weasis hadiksa sonko. O kanonyo nangatwinisa de no januk to onhejohe. Dane dako nangatwinisa de. Kajison dasia, oyo wane kajison dasia. Ne ne, hadik wat da. Okanonyo hadik wat da, hoja nook da onhejohe. Ne ne, gay nanondi, hadeo yak keono, di yankinat na donjas. Oyo wane gay nanondi, hoja nook da onhejohe. Nene Sedwa Gowane Ganya Dayo Ne Haikwa Gaiwiyo Uyo Wane Gaiwiyo Noja Nuk Don Hejohe Dani Dako Ganonyo Ne Haikwa Gaiwa Deko Ne Jajento Sangwayat Dizan Scan up, dwell not then yo, Ningenja good then, Nangat when he said, eh? Die a dugwater jan, O jugwater non yo, Dani ho wine yo then, Nescat ni coin, Dani ho. Yeah, no. So, um, I can't thank you enough for your words and your preface to using the language, the way that you explained in English what the acknowledgments all are. And I appreciate also the point that you made about you doing the best that you could 
provided the, you know, or given the, the circumstances and given the responsibility placed upon you to, to provide these words. And I think that it's important that we acknowledge and we also uh, mention to, to folks out there that, again, that we're both learning. He's still learning. And so please understand that, um, you know, some mistakes may have been made. Some pronunciations may not have always been 100%, but it was the best that he could do at that time. And it's always beautiful for me to sit back and, you know, being his son, I've heard this rendition or I've heard him offer these words uh, many times. And there's often times that I've always wanted to kind of like, you know, give him a poke and just remind him of something to say or to acknowledge and things like that. But when you get into this place of um, giving the ganon yoke, you get into this flow and you get into this place where you're just really kind of focused and you're trying to remember all the pieces and all the words and how to say things. And so it's inappropriate to try to, you know, interrupt him or try to break that flow that he's in. But it's always beautiful. And um, I think people who, who hear the translation of it um, really appreciate the words that he's offering. And there is, of course, that that issue of um, the lost in translation piece, where the language can sometimes often be much more beautiful than the English translation. And the way that things are being said and the way that they're being described and being presented has a much richer and deeper meaning than really what the English language can provide in terms of a translation. So again, I appreciate, you know, my father for doing this for me. I know it was challenging. I know that I kind of backed him into a corner a little bit <laughs> to get him to do this for me. But I felt that it was important that this is the groundwork. This is where we inform a lot of what this podcast is about. Each of the elements that he gave thanks for are pieces that are going to guide this podcast. They're going to be places where I'm going to go and question and wonder. And I've tried to find people who are doing different work in different communities that is working to give thanks and preserve each of these elements. And so those are the people that I want to present to you today or as we go through this podcast. I want to go and find those people that are doing that work. And I want to talk to them and see what the challenges are. But also paint the picture of positivity because there are so many negative stories and negative you know, memories of indigenous people. And I want to bring these people to life. I want you to understand who they are and who's doing this work and share some awesome stories. I think that we've kind of gotten into this place right now and paying the due respect to the Gononio. But I also want to understand and let you all understand that um, there's a lightheartedness to Native humor and Native people. And we're not the stoic Indian standing up on top of a mountaintop looking out over the vastness of the world, shaking our head, raising our fist, whatever that is. I want to shine through the humor. You're going to hear laughter. You're going to hear cackling. You're going to have people, you know, telling different stories. And, um, you know, so I want to kind of lighten it up a little bit. Um, but I also want to pay the respect that the Gononyok deserves. And I also want to pay the respect that my father deserves for providing this, the words before all else.
And that next layer beneath that are the people who were his teachers, the people who gave him these messages and these words and this understanding of this way of life. We don't look at our culture as a religion. We look at it as a way of life. And so again, that's what the Gnonio is going to be. And that's what this conversation at the podcast is going to be, is our way of life. And what are the things that sustain us? What are the things in our lives that are provided here that are important to our survival? Go ahead. Yeah, I, I really, I'm thinking about those people that were my teachers. Some of them now gone. And uh, I kind of want to mention their names. I just feel that need to say that, you know, I had teachers, some of them very briefly, maybe. Some of them I had time to really spend with them. And uh, they came from different communities. I remember once the uh, a man, his name was uh, DeForest Abrams. And when I, he, he was one of the first ones that gave me a really good translation of Canonio. And it was just one afternoon that I, went, I happened to be at his home and, and he decided he wanted to teach me. So he started talking and I just listened. And I went home with such a good feeling that he had really helped me to understand something that I heard many times, but I, at that time my language was so poor that I could not really follow completely at all. And then there was my friend Johnson Jimerson who really, really did help me to say, to answer the question, what does it mean to say I am Seneca? He said, you have a language, you have songs and dances, you have a knowledge of the medicines and, uh, that are here. We have art and we have crafts. You know, we have ceremonies and songs that go with those. And we have a traditional way of dressing, and, you know, a way of giving thanks. He just really wanted it to be very clear that there is a lot to it and that I would be spending the rest of my life to learn it, to learn about what it means to call myself Onondawaka. At that same time, I had another teacher who came from this was in the city of Buffalo, and her name was Fleeta Hill. She came from Tonawanda. Johnson originally came from Allegheny. And Fleeta was really my first real language teacher that, you know, we only focused on language when she and I were together. There were others who gave me little bits and pieces. A woman named Nora Bennett from Cattaraugus. And then I had teachers like Worthington Green, his wife, Geraldine, and um, Lehman Dar Dowdy. And one of my teachers that I used to really have some real good laughs with was Dar, another was Warren Skye, Hoinza Guigo, we called him. And then I have had another teacher that has been helpful to me for many years, and that is Clayton Logan. 
And I'm happy to say that we remain friends and I still continue to learn from him until this time. There have been others along the way. If I didn't mention them, it's not because I don't think they were important to me. They were each and every one of them. But I felt the need right then just to say the names of some of those that gave me a fuller understanding of our way of life that we, in our language, we call it Onkwe Onwe Ka, Onkwe Onwe Ka, the way of life of the real human being. And it's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful gift that we have been given. Okay, so that is um, a great segue into maybe a little bit more of a deeper dive and a little bit more of a conversation. Um, And I think that also there are you know, it's important to acknowledge another person that maybe you've left off as a um, a contemporary of mine and um, a person who I hope to maybe be able to bring into this podcast as well is uh, Mr. Jamie Jacobs. Yeah. Uh, he's a young man um, who is uh, a bit of a national treasure in a lot of ways. Um, you know, he's a very um, uh, scholarly person in terms of um, his study of the language. Um you know, and he's just a, an immense resource for so many people, um, his understanding, but also his ability to kind of, um, you know, break down the language and maybe kind of think about it in terms of um, what does it mean? What is the perspective? What was the teaching at that time? And um, his his understanding and his grasp and his, you know, thinking is well beyond his years, I think, in some ways. And uh, so I've been able to learn a lot from him. Go ahead. That has been one of the, uh, I guess you could almost say like a challenging thing is that um, someone who is so much younger than I am, who has such a great knowledge of our language and who has worked at it very conscientiously, you know, to, to come to the understanding he has today, um, who is teaching me when I get into situations where I have been asked to do things because I'm the one here in the Rochester area and so I have to step up and help out families at times but I want to do it with the right language to do it correctly and so Jamie has been very helpful to me in helping me prepare those remarks those words that I have to use and um, so yes, and as I say, it's, it's the idea that someone so much younger can actually teach a person much older or help a person much older to, to get the words right. Yeah, so prior to the podcast and before our, you know, opening this up today, um, our conversation started around, you know, when was it that you became aware of... Um, you know, your indigeneity, <laughs> which is an interesting word, um, but a word of academia, I believe. Um, I think if you say that around certain Native people today, they'd look at you and be like, excuse me, what did you just call me? <laughs> but being at a place like Cornell University, I was exposed to this sort of language in this discourse, and indigeneity is the terminology for your understanding of yourself as an indigenous person, as a Native person, I guess. That's the rudimentary uh, definition of this. And, um, you know, in talking to my dad, um, there was the, uh, 
there's a, there's an anniversary that's coming up here, and it's the uh, the occupation of Alcatraz, um, which was um, uh, began and happened 50 years ago. And um, a person who was very instrumental in that that occupation was a, a, a Mohawk person, a Ganyatehage person, um, Richard Oakes. And um, this happened in San Francisco, in Alcatraz. And my father at the time, um, who, you know, by training, is actually a pretty amazing artist. And um, he was out sowing his wild oats, and um, I'm not exactly 100% sure how and why he ended up in San Francisco at the time. I know that back in the 60s, it was a pretty wild and freewheeling place, and um, this man... The Seneca man felt it was his place to go out there and be a part of that. So let's put you in 1969, San Francisco, yeah. rose-colored lenses <laughs> in the glasses, uh, probably some bell-bottoms, <laughs> slight smell of patchouli, um, maybe various other um, things in the air at the time. I don't know. But, uh, you know, we'll go vanilla with all that. But um, a consciousness of being Seneca and a recognition of yourself uh, happened at that time. Well, so take me to 1969. In 1969, um, I went to work for a company that I had worked for in New York City uh, right, out of high, right out of college. After graduating from Buffalo State, I decided to move to New York City. I jokingly always say to become a famous artist. <laughs> and I, I had some luck, which really was unbelievable. I mean, like nine months after I arrived in New York City, I was showing in a very prestigious art gallery on one of the most important streets in New York at the time for art, which was 57th Street. I was showing with the Tibor Dinagi Gallery, one of my paintings. And I worked for a company just down the street from that, also on 57th Street, called Design Research. And Design Research handled some of the most beautifully made um, contemporary kitchenware and fabric and uh, furniture and rugs and all kinds of very well-made things, very well-designed items that you would use in the home. And I, um, I worked for that company not very long. It was probably only about six months maybe I worked for them. And I was not able to make ends meet in New York City. I didn't really have an idea of what to do with success and I didn't really have uh, a way to keep myself focused enough and so I found myself having to leave the city and go and back to Buffalo, New York, where I'd gone to school, and take a teaching job. And then a friend of mine decided to go to school in Oakland at the California College of Arts and Crafts. And he contacted me and said, why don't you come out and um, move out here? My teaching job had ended you know, for the summer. And I didn't really know, well, I really wasn't going to go back there to that teaching job. And so California sounded very appealing. I moved out there knowing that this company, Design Research, had a, had a branch um, in a place called the Ghirardelli 
chocolate factory. It, it was now no longer a chocolate factory, but it had been built by this company called Ghirardelli. And they had a whole square called Ghirardelli Square, which is made up of many different kinds of shops, specialty shops, especially shops for tourism. And uh, I took a job with design research there. This put me right on San Francisco Bay. The Golden Gate Bridge was to our left, Fisherman's Wharf to our right, and Alcatraz Island sat out in the bay, just, you know, really very close. And as, you know, circumstances would have it, Native people took over Alcatraz Island, uh, led by Richard Oakes. And I didn't choose to go out there and become a part of that occupation. I knew they were struggling. I knew there was a, a, not a, a really adequate source of water, an adequate source of uh, supplies for them. But this was a determined group. And I followed the stories because there were many small um, underground presses that were working at the time, and they would carry the stories, the more, more uh, fully developed stories about things going on, especially among the group that was working for change, trying to bring about change. And what type of change are they trying to bring about? What do you think? Well, you know, you during, during this time... Uh, this is the 60s. This is the 60s, and this is the time when uh, Richard Nixon was perpetuating the war in Vietnam, and uh, people wanted that war stopped. There was an anti-war movement, and this was the time when those students were killed at Kent State. Okay. And this caused a lot of uh, people to reflect upon the idea that you would direct an army against your own kids, your own children. Um, this really got a lot of people very angry. A lot of activism was happening. A lot of time. activism. And, you know, there were people who, who were also advocating for everything from free love to the legalization of marijuana to the, um, you know, the idea that you don't have to work in a nine-to-five job in an office, that you can live in a more free lifestyle, that you can find ways to make things of your own that you would sell, you know, and trade and do whatever. Um, people who lived in vans and people who lived in sort of custom-made houses that were on wheels, you know, that they could drive around in, school buses and all that sort of thing. Music was huge. You know, this is a time period, um, Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and all of these people are, you know, the Jefferson Airplane. Grateful and, Dead. Grateful Dead, I could go on and on with all these different groups that were very influential, you know, to, uh, to the people at that time. And, you know, then, and so people, um, again, they, there was a lot of activism going on and a, and a lot of uh, uh, desire for change. You know, we, we, we saw the direct result of, America focusing on a war in Vietnam that was so far away and so much need at home still, uh, you know, among many different groups of people. And you still had, you know, Chicano, Native American, African American people who, who were really not full, 
I don't know, you could say we're not giving the full opportunity that, uh, you know, others were. Yeah. And so, you know, this was, this was something important. And, and there was a real move toward consciousness, too, like consciousness raising. There was a man by the name of Steve Gaskin who used to hold once a week these gatherings and just talk about all of these things that I'm kind of, you know, just touching on. Were you able to sit in on those conversations? I did. I went to those conversations. Yeah, they were like big, big, you know, groups of people. There would be hundreds of people there. Yeah. And in a, uh, it was really a dance hall, a, you know, a place where bands played too. And um, later, he had some additional influence with the Haudenosaunee. This is quite a bit later, Steve Gaskin. But at any rate, um, one other Seneca man was out there at the same time that I was, and his name was John Garlow, and he and I had grown up together in Irving, of all places. And um, so we would get together. So anyway, there was this kind of beginning for me of, of thinking about our place in the world, you know, our Native American people. What is our place in the world? And that grew because two friends of mine were working for the Museum of the American Indian in New York City. And when I moved back east, which was about 1971, back to Schenectady, New York, and um, they, were, they had decided to do an exhibit at the Museum of the American Indian that had not been done since something in the 30s which was to show the work of living Native American artists. And they picked a group of artists that they wanted to have in this exhibit, and I was one of them. I had been a friend of the man. His name was Tom Martin. He and I had gone to undergraduate school together at Buffalo, and then through him I met his wife. And they wanted me included in this exhibit of contemporary art, and they picked some people who had already quite a reputation, uh, Fritz Scholder, George Morrison, um, Neil Parsons, uh, myself, and this Lloyd Oxendine. Yeah. The, the five of us were included in this exhibit at this museum. And that really, uh, again, I started to think, you know, what do I know about who I am? And at one point, Tom's sister said to me, uh, asked me the question, have you ever heard of Handsome Lake? And I can honestly say at that time, I didn't know who Handsome Lake was. Wow. And so I said, no, who was he? And she said, well, she referred me to an author, Arthur Parker. Yeah. She said, you should pick up a copy of Arthur Parker's book. You should go and research and find out who he was. Now, here's an irony for you. Because I was living in Schenectady, the closest place for me to go to do some of the research I wanted to do was Albany, Albany State University. And the person who was the emeritus, the historian emeritus at the time was William Fenton. Oh, wow. And okay. so William Fenton provided me with a graduate student and a reading list, and that graduate student took me to the library and showed me the books that I should learn to, I should read. Yeah. And so I really began that process through the direction of an anthropologist who later I wound up 
in confrontations with <laughs> I, ironically yeah. yeah i'm sure he remembered very well who i was sure you know and where the route i had taken but he was a willing teacher or a willing person to show me where it was anyway um there were some Mohawk people who worked for the New York State Education Department, and they also gave me opportunities to do some uh, illustrations for a book that they had put together. Um, so all of a sudden, these little, all these things were sort of coming. And then one day when Lloyd and I were working, um, he eventually Lloyd opened a gallery in Soho on Wooster Street. Wooster at the corner of Prince, uh, just in from the corner on Wooster. And, um, and this is in Manhattan. This is in Manhattan. This yep. is New York City. And, and I art, had an, art I was, was taken off at that time. Art and, was kind of taking off, and, and Lloyd had opportunity. And you as an artist, I mean, and, and not for nothing, I mean, still pretty, pretty green, still really learning, still kind of coming up in the world, but then having this, this foothold in New York City – and in the New York art scene, and you as a native artist, and you know when I when I go back and I you know you think about like a Fritz Shoulder and the type of work that he does, very stylistic in a in a particular way, and and focusing on certain subjects and sort of imagery and iconography, and your art's a little different. Yes. So you know, you learning about Handsome Lake at this time, what was informing your art at that time to then define? your art is like native art because you're not making the prototypical native person in a headdress, you know, and then right. throwing that out there. Yours right. is a little bit more subtle. It's a little bit more, you know. Well, I guess right from the very beginning when I started to learn Gandonio, the idea of giving thanks, I really started to focus on the natural world and our relationship to the natural world and I looked for how had the natural world informed our art. And then when I was thinking of our art, what I was seeing maybe more of at the time would have been beadwork items that were in collections, like the Denver Art Museum. I happened to be able to get into the back room of the Denver Art Museum and look at a lot of art that was there. Um, and uh, so in looking at these things, I realized this was a great source of beauty, you know. The, the an expression. An well. expression, yeah. yeah. Taking, taking, you know, essentially our women looked at the natural world and they translated that into beadwork, but they came up with very unique designs. I'm not talking about the ones that were influenced by perhaps fabrics that they saw, but their own interpretations of these plant life that they saw. I think it's important, let me just jump in real quick also, that like some of the most amazing works and pieces that are in museums and wherever, you know, historical places and things like that, a lot of that artwork was produced by women. Yes. And so women were really, you know, these ones that are interpreting, like you said, the natural world and things like that, but maybe not getting quite the respect and maybe sort of the sort of um, acknowledgement that other artists at that time you know, who were coming up through the 60s and things like that, were really quite getting. So, I mean, I think it's important, again, to talk about that. But, I mean, I think, but continue on with your thought. But I just wanted to make that acknowledgement. You're absolutely right. And here's what, you know, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Sure. 
because as a result of um, my contact with Lloyd and, and Lloyd convincing me to go to Six Nations to hear Guy Wheel for the very first time and to... And when do you say this become, is? When is this? Oh, this would have been 1970, early 1973. Okay. Um, and so... You know, it would have been the fall of 1973 I went. So I was there and um, meeting people. My cousin was there too, Mike Myers, which helped to introduce me to the people that, you know, were, who were our hosts, which was the Onondagas of uh, Six Nations. Which is in Ontario, southern Ontario. Uh, southern Ontario at Six Nations Reserve, right? Yeah. And um, at any rate... That, that, again, kind of, you know, got me thinking. And, and eventually, I went for a grant from a, from a foundation called America the Beautiful. And I decided to put together an exhibit of our best artists. In order to do that, I went to each of our different communities, Tonawanda, Cattaraugus, Allegheny, Akwesasne, Onondaga, and I asked the question, who are the artists that are most important here? Mm. And then I went to meet those people, and I made a request of them to loan work to me, which I would rent from them in order to put together an exhibit that I would move from community to community and install it wherever it was possible, whether it was in the Onondaga Nation School, the Sailor Building at Cataraugus, the Tonawanda Community Building, Aquasasne Library and Cultural Center, wherever it was possible for me to hang this exhibit, I would put it there. And I, um, and that introduced me to all of these different artists in these com in the communities, and then the people who sent me to them. You know, I got to meet new people. And, um, and you're and just out doing road work, just out traveling, and kind of went off with a dollar and a dream, and was like, "I'm going to go beat down the doors and beat the bushes I, to I go had, and find these people." I had a West Coast van, <laughs> was empty, <laughs> and I commissioned a guy to build cabinets for me so that I could exhibit three-dimensional pieces. Okay. And you know, I just decided I was going to do this, right? And I, um. And as a result of that, you know, I eventually took that exhibit to New York City, too, and, and installed it there. By that work with the uh, America the Beautiful Foundation, I got introduced, well, Carson Waterman and I, or a little bit later than this, maybe 75, 74, 75, we together put together an organization called the Seneca Nation Organization for the Visual Arts. SNOVA. SNOVA. Yeah. Exactly, for sure. And so this was sort of a, a bit of an artist collection or an artist guild. Yeah, this was, a, this was us taking traditional artists and contemporary artists and putting them in situations where they could be the teachers of any students that wanted to come to them. Now, what is the difference between traditional artists and contemporary? Okay, so a, a traditional artist, I'm thinking in terms of at the time that I was working, people who were wood carvers, as an example. You were making things from wood, whether it be a lacrosse stick or a snow snake. Um, it might be something more, you know, it might be one of our medicine faces. It, yeah. But they were carvers, and, and they could teach this if they were willing to those who came to, to learn from them. And also, like, making instruments, water drums and things like that. They did and, all that, rattles know. and water drums. And, yeah. You know, they made all these things. Then I would 
think of a person who was working with corn husks, yeah. making corn husk craft, people who were doing silver work, people who spoke the language, people who were tradition who could cook traditional dishes, people who taught dancing, yeah. you know, social dancing. Yep. I had to get in contact with all of these different people and ask them to teach, not just within the longhouse context, but teach actually within our community buildings, which was very new. This was not something people did. And this was to teach the community, the people of the community. To take, our, to take the people from our own community and introduce them to our traditions. And some of these things would have been lost to these people through various means. I mean, part of it may have been because of their, their family members being a part of the, the boarding schools and the residential schools and things like that. That also was a factor that they had maybe gone to Thomas Indian School. Thomas so Indian School, which is right there in Cataraugus. Taken away from, you know, the home life where they might have learned these things or might have seen somebody doing these things. They, they didn't have that opportunity, and now they were, you know, interested and hungry for it. And here was an opportunity for them to go and learn. And so this was through the grant. Well, no. First it was, the grant was mainly focused on the art aspect. Yeah. But I was the director of the Seneca Nation Education Program. Gotcha. And that was a federally funded program. And when I began, I was just in charge of Cataraugus. Hmm. But the person who was in charge of Allegheny quit. And now I had to take on Allegheny and Cataraugus. So I had hmm. to hire the people from both communities to teach within their community. Those who came from Allegheny and those who came from Cataraugus. And this was around 19... This was 74, 75. So just a little bit of prelude here. 74, 75. Ansley Jemison was born in 1976. Yes. He was originally from Cataraugus, my father. Came over to Allegheny. And then 1976, Ansley Jemison happens, who was from Allegheny. His mother's from Allegheny. Yes. So that's when I met your mother. <laughs> yes, that's true. Okay. I met your mother, you know, probably in 1975. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so I want to get to that point because your grandmother, Ruth, was a very good beadworker. Mm. Very good. And she belonged to the Allegheny Arts and Crafts Co-op. And Allegheny Arts and Crafts Co-op was one of those places where women were the main ones doing the beadwork. Doing basket makers. Basket makers, beadwork, um, other things too as well. Clothing, you know. And, um, And so the next step I wound up taking was the National Endowment for the Arts hired me to go around the country, to go around literally the United States and go into different communities and look at the community initiatives that were ongoing to maintain either tradition or to bring in art into their community. So I got to go to San Ildefonso Pueblo in New Mexico. Mm. I got to go to Duluth, Minnesota. I got to go to... Who was Tus- out there? What, what nations are out there? Uh, right now, I can't even recall exactly, sure. but it could be Potawatomi. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, there's others I'm not really... Sure, sorry. Right. Odawa, yeah. Odawa as well. Then, 
I got to go to Tucson, Arizona to where the Yaki lived, mm. right? Yeah. And um, I got to go to... Then I got to Pasqua go. Pasquayaki. Yeah. Yeah. Pasquayaki. I got to go visit other communities which were not native communities, where they were not the dominant group there. Nashville, Tennessee, um, San Francisco, California. You know, there were some natives and non natives involved with this, these programs. Um, I'm probably leaving out some. But in all of this, you know, I, I got to see what a community was doing to keep alive its traditions. Other native communities. Other native communities. And then if there was a way that funding could encourage them to keep it going, I could make a direct recommendation that they should continue to get funding to do what they were doing and carry it on. Now, was this all based on your work that you had done with Snova and then like it gained some sort of reputation around yeah, it? Yeah, the work I had done with Snova... The work I had done with Lloyd, mm. you know, um, and was Lloyd the work a I was doing with the Seneca Nation. Yeah. Well, Lloyd gave me the introduction to the people from the America the Beautiful Fund because he had gotten a grant from them initially to help him set up the gallery in Soho. Okay. That came before the New York State Council on the Arts funding. Eventually, I got for for Snova New York State Council on the Arts funding too. And. You know, I was unique in that at that time period. Uh, you know, a native person with an art background who could work on, you know, cross the line, navigate going, these spaces, navigate these spaces, right? Yeah. Which were very unique, you know, and be expected to write a report to send back to the National Endowment for the Arts, you know, <laughs> and work with work with mainly African Americans who ran the programs that, for the National Endowment for the Arts wow. at that time. Van Tyle Whitfield was one of them, one of the very early ones that I worked with. And this other man, like, whose name I'm blanking on right now, but who had a jazz program on, on radio in, uh, in Washington, D.C., but became the head of a program called Expansion Arts. Wow. And um, A.B. Spellman's name was. A.B. Spellman. Yeah. Okay. So all these guys, you know, I mean, all these people gave me opportunity and relied on me being able to make judgments about these things and exposed me to, you know, travel and to communities I would never otherwise have been able to get to, you know, opportunities to talk and speak with people that, um, you know, were just, it was just amazing, really. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and at the time, picture this, I'm living in Steenburg, right? I'm living at Joe Negano. This is the Allegheny Territory of yeah. the Seneca Nation, a very small kind of secluded community and that's yeah. where I grew up at. Right. You know, mountainous community and you know, we're we're living out there and and I'm flying around the United States. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really unique, you know, and and it, it was very hard to tell people exactly what I was doing, you know. I mean, I could tell them, but I mean for them to really relate to what I'm saying, yeah. It was just so different, you know, some of it that, and the goal of it all again was like to that, to that promotion and that growth and expansion of traditional art along with contemporary art. Yeah. But then just kind of this new whole kind of a place where indigenous native art was actually being respected, I guess, and, yes, and, and being and, collected, or even being kind of ex having some exposure to the rest of the world. Yeah, and of course, unbeknownst to me, I mean, to not really fully understand yet the extent of the art of the Southwest. Yeah. And suddenly seeing how much 
there, the art was respected, yeah. and what opportunities were there and had been there for many years. And still today. And that's, it's still there and today. It's yeah. And we didn't have anything like that, you know. Yeah. We didn't have anything by comparison. And what do you think the difference is or why that is? I mean, is it because of the population size or was it just that there well, was... Well, I think that people went out there, especially non-Native people, went out there and really felt that this art should receive a place in the sun, you know? So is this like a George O'Keefe like, type? Well, even before that, you know, there oh. was Dorothy Dunn. Okay. Uh, there were others whose you know names are escaping me right at the moment, but who had been very much a part of the promotion of it. The Institute of American Indian Arts, I, I, beginning I, something, yeah. way, I mean, beginning as far back as 1962. Wow, you know, and um, and really bringing together young people from all these different communities um, with contemporary artists like a Fritz Scholder, like an yeah. uh, Alan Hauser, and oh, yeah. we could go on and on with those. And so again, I began to cross paths with all these people, and then. Uh, got involved with national movements for Native American art, hmm. one called Adelatl for the Advancement of American Indian Art, or oh, Native yeah. American Art. And, um, you know, I started traveling to meetings of that group, and again, now we're bringing together arts administrators and people from the, uh, the New Mexico Arts Commission, the Arizona hmm. Arts Commission, you know, from wherever they lived, and you know, and I'm in the middle of this co these conversations about uh, the promotion of contemporary Native art, yeah. and and that ultimately leads me to go back to New York City, but not until 1978, but to run the American Indian Community House Gallery. Yeah, I was wondering what that date was. So yeah, it was that 78. Was, was... That was 78 when I first went there after having been an iron worker for a year, and then trying to run Snova again. So 74, then... 75 was Snova. Yeah. 76, Ansley. That's around the time period when I'm an iron worker. 77, the blizzard of 77. Blizzard of 77. I'm loved working it. outdoors, <laughs> iron working, <laughs> in one of the worst possible storms, you know, you can imagine to be working outdoors. Starving artist, family. <laughs> You've got a family. Trying to take care of a young family. Okay. You know, and then... Uh, and then going back to Allegheny to run Snova again and running it as long as it would it could keep going. And then I get a phone call saying, what would you think about coming to New York City and starting a new art gallery or really like, you know, being one of the foundations for this new art gallery that's, that we're trying to get started? So this is 80... This is 1978. 78, okay, 78. sorry. Okay. Yeah. So, then... so here, let me give you a picture. Yeah. I'm standing on Broad Street... Salamanca. In Salamanca, New York, out in front of the building that Snova is using. And my old ironworking boss pulls up and says to me, I've been looking for you. <laughs> and he says, I want to have you come back to work for me, but now I want you to, I'm going to teach you how to estimate jobs. You won't have to get up on the iron anymore. <laughs> I'll teach you how to be an estimator to get business for my company. And I had, on the other hand, do I go to New York City and go back to the art world and take on the responsibilities of running this gallery that they're trying to get going? And I, you know, I could see the advancement of my own art career as a result of doing that. Yeah. Or do I go back to ironworking? And in that afternoon, standing there, 
I said to him, I think I'm going to go back to where I was, how I was originally trained, which was an artist, yeah. as an artist, right? I'm going to go back in that direction, and I think that's really the way I want to go. And, and he was disappointed, you know. I sure. mean, I had, I had been an iron worker since I was 19 years old. Summer know? jobs and things yeah, like that. Yeah, summer, jab, summer jobs, which, you know, your grandfather, my father, Ansley, got me into. Yeah. And so um, I knew those two worlds. I mean, I had good knowledge of both of them, you know. But I thought at this point in time, I'm now in my 30s, I probably ought to go in the direction of the art world and try to push my career there. So this is back to Soho. This is, well, first it's back to 38th Street and 5th Avenue because okay. the gallery had not, I moved the gallery to Soho. Okay. But I didn't move the gallery to Soho until 1982. So when does the um, Tommy Ahern, or no, the Charlie Ahern um, exhibit happen? Charlie, and, and so Charlie okay. Ahern, for those of you who may or may not know, was the guy who was behind the movie Wild Style. Now, Wild Style was one of the early hip-hop movies, one of the early movies about hip-hop and the history and the culture and the, the understanding of how that all spurned up out of the Bronx. And it's significant because, and why I'm mentioning this is because while I work at Cornell University, a exhibit had recently opened up or a collection became part of the holdings at Cornell University, which is the Cornell Hip Hop Collection. And Cornell University has the largest collection of hip hop artifacts in the world today. And they have the collection of Africa Bombada, who was one of the original uh, DJs, I guess, during the whole hip hop breakdance movement and all of that sort of stuff. And during the opening... Charlie Ahern was invited to come to Cornell University to Crock Library and to talk about, you know, what drove him to want to kind of like do this movie wild style featuring, you know, hip hop. And so hip hop, which we all know now has like expanded beyond the world. And it's really something that touches all communities. There's every different form of hip hop throughout the world. My father knows this guy, Charlie Ahern. I'm sitting there, mouth on the floor, wondering how in the world, what, what, what do you... So, so tell, in, tell in, me about Charlie Ahern and what that was about. In 1979, I was sitting at my desk in the American Indian Community House Gallery uh, on 38th Street, uh, just in from 5th Avenue, between 5th and Madison, and a guy comes in the door... And I'm doodling on a lunch bag. I'm doing some doodles on my lunch bag. And um, he introduces himself as Charlie, right? And he says, I'm working on an exhibit that's going to be over here in Times Square. And The Times Square. The now, this is pre-now what it looks like Disney-fied Times Square. Didn't look like that at all. Did not look like it does today. <laughs> It was a wholly different place. And of Downtown course, hell, maybe a better uh, I, I <laughs> description. Was, I was very familiar with Times Square because I lived in Hell's Kitchen the first year I lived in New York, and I used to have to go through the Port Authority building just down from Times Square to go to my home, my apartment. And uh, so, you know, that's the Times Square I remember, the Times Square of the late 1960s. So at any rate, 1979, Charlie comes in and Charlie says, 
you know, I'm on this exhibit, and the exhibit is going to be on three floors of a former massage parlor. And he's inviting all of these different artists. He wants the most diverse group of artists that have ever been included in an art show. Give some of these names. Drop some of these names because okay. it it's an amazing this list. This is the part that's really crazy. <laughs> Keith Herring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, um, Tom Otterson, uh, Christy Rupp. I mean, you know, Charlie and Johnny Hearn, and then there's a whole bunch of other people whose names, you know, I'm just not pulling out of a hat right now. And black artists, I'm the native artist, street artist who, you know, had no training whatsoever and created a piece for this particular show. And, and street art being like graffiti type work? or Well, they were doing graffiti and there were people who were just making things out of trash. You found know, whatever, object Found types. objects, yeah, yeah. really. And uh, and he had to fill up three floors of a building, you know, with <laughs> art. And and at that time, uh, you know, one of the things that people were doing was creating Xerox books. You know, going to a copier and and taking some of your art and making a book out of your own art. Yeah. And then you know they were selling those to make some money for the exhibit. You know. Yeah. I suppose they were renting the space and they needed to cover the rent. I don't know. Um. Anyway, so Charlie asked me to do some more paper bags for this exhibit at uh, on Times Square. And so I went about, you know, creating some paper bags. So let's talk, okay, so you're, you became kind of famous for your paper bags. I mean, that was kind of a, a, a Peter Jemison sort of, you know, item that you could recognize, easily recognize and know that, okay, that's a Peter Jemison piece. And... I finally hear, heard you talk about the, the paper bags in a number of different ways, and, I, and it kind of made a lot of really cool sense to me, which I really appreciated. And it was this kind of common object, common thing that's throughout the world, but it was also like this sort of important object and invention, really, of like its capabilities and what it could do. Yeah, you know, and it didn't go throughout the world. I mean, for example, when I lived in Italy, I went to school in Italy as a young man, when I was in college, you had to take your own bag to the market when you went to buy food because they didn't hand you a paper bag to put your groceries in, right? This is something that was kind of a U.S. phenomenon, although there are other countries that had bags of some sort. Um, but at any rate, so, um, yeah, I saw it as a common object, one that everybody could relate to. And this is the beginning of the time period when more and more shopping bags have some kind of design on them that is indicative of the store you bought it from. Yeah. You know, and then I some could... Some branding or whatever. Some branding. And, and I could take... I could literally take a shopping bag and then taking graduated smaller sizes of bags, I, I used to laugh and say, I could transport the entire show inside of a shopping bag. <laughs> kind of like a nesting doll. <laughs> like a nesting doll. I could pull <laughs> off different size bags. Okay. And so... The first time I did that was for a show that came directly out of the Times Square show. I did a show at a place called Just Above Midtown, and they asked me to show bags there. Now, I'm going to tell one last story before we take a break here. Your mother and I had an argument, right? And so your mother would not allow me back in the apartment to pick up the bags that I had created for this show that I was going to be in at Just Above Midtown. So I literally went to the home of Harry Wallace and Rosalind 
and I created an entire new show overnight that I could deliver the next morning to just above Midtown using the art materials that Rosalind had and any paper bags that were around the apartment. And, and this story... Harry Wallace never got over that. Chief was... Harry Wallace of the Wampanoag. <laughs> <laughs> Trained as a lawyer, now a, a chief down on Long Island. A Yuchung. A Yuchung, excuse me, yes. Yeah, and then also, um, you know, very famous for his uh, uh, wampum work. Wampum yes, the shells right. and beads and things like that. And, and his he's daughter really, as well, a, a yeah. very good wampum, skilled wampum maker. So we're going to take a quick break um, there, but we're going to come back to some more stories and uh, share some more. We're back. Okay. So go ahead. I want to correct one thing that I said that I remembered when we took the break. The very first Pueblo I actually went to was um, Okiowinge, and that is San Juan Pueblo in New Mexico. They had a co-op which was very like the Allegheny Co-op. It was run by women, and they were doing their traditional crafts, and then they had kind of gone off into a new direction of producing fabrics using Pueblo designs. And so I had the opportunity just to go and see it, meet the people who ran it, meet the women who were the uh, ones contributing the art and the craft, and to talk to them about maintaining uh, the highest quality in order for them to advance, you know, what they wanted to do. And that was something I took from Allegheny. You know, they had, mm. they had older women who would look at the beadwork brought in by younger women, and they, they would literally give them constructive criticism of what could be improved, and they were very particular about what they accepted so that the quality always remained high. And that, that was a very important concept, I believe. So now at this time, I mean, in talking about that, like, okay, quality and, you know, level of mastery and things, um, what was the intention of this? I mean, was it for for sale or was it for actually, like, maintaining cultural um, practices? Or, I mean, because I know that, like, Indian market in Santa Fe is a huge thing. And there's collectors that come to collect, you know, uh, Pueblo art and things like that. Yeah. So what, in, in your estimation, I mean, what was the, you know, what was behind all that? Well, if I was speaking of Allegheny, it was, you know, the women were obviously making money by the sale of their beadwork and the co-op depended on their work being able to be sold and expanding their markets so that they had other places that were, you know, where they could go and show it and sell it. So they, theirs was really motivated by, well, people who wanted to learn how yeah. to do, you know, quality beadwork, and then people who wanted to also be able to sell that quality beadwork as they got better at it. And what about the basketry and the baskets and things? Well, like the basketry that? was kind of limited to to the one family, and that was Nettie Watts' family yeah. and her okay. daughters who really kept maintaining that. Yeah, it's been more recently that it has got, gotten expanded more, and there are other people. There are people doing it now. There was a period of time when there were many basket makers at Allegheny. And then there's a period of time when it's down to one family essentially doing mm-hmm. it. And now it's come back to where I think it's broadening a little bit more. Yeah. And there are other people, other women doing it. And now up in the Mohawk territory, it's, it's had a really strong well, tradition and, as and well. That, that was the first place where I really encountered it. When I went to Akwesasne and I really went to their 
real small cultural center in the beginning and saw the basket work, you know, and, and then got introduced to basket makers. I got to know people like Mary Adams and her sister, Margaret, and I got to know uh, Florence Benedict, and, and there were just so many different women who were doing the basket work and who were very high-quality work, you know. So for the people in the audience who may not be familiar with traditional Iroquois Haudenosaunee baskets, can you tell a little bit of like what the construction and where, yeah. what it was made from and then kind of what okay. so all of the these, art of it all? All of these baskets are made from the black ash tree. They're, they take, they create splints. And the way in which they do this is they, they, they find a, a black ash tree that is of the right size and as straight as it could be, Many times, ideally, it has been growing in a fairly moist area where it's taken in a lot of moisture. And then, you know, as these growth rings are added, as the tree grows, it's the growth rings that the basket makers are going to be after. And so they're going to take this tree that they've taken down and they're interested in maybe the, oh, I don't know, 10 to 8 feet of it. And they're going to literally, uh, you know, lay it on the ground, take all the bark off it, and then taking the blunt end of an axe, they're going to cut, first with the sharp end of the axe, they're going to cut a knot, two notches, at the end of the log. And um, they're going to space them fairly close together, you know, maybe the width of three or four fingers, three fingers maybe, cut two notches, and then they're going to pound the entire length of that log using the blunt end of the axe, and gradually the growth rings will separate away from the rest of the tree, and they'll pull those growth rings back, and this is the material that they're after for creating splints. They will take the growth ring and split it further lengthwise, this is a process that takes a lot of strength in your hands and real skill. And then they're going to trim those growth, that, that splint and, and scrape it and everything to get it to a very pliable state. And this is what they're going to use when they're making a basket. The splints, the, the growth rings of the black ash tree, they will add to that in, in certain types of baskets sweet grass and the sweet grass gives the basket a wonderful aroma uh, it's a decorative item but there are so many different styles of these baskets from the very functional pack basket uh, to something that functions you know on like a uh, a berry picking basket a basket that you can wash your corn in so that you can get the hulls off it, another functional type of basket. And it's almost like a colander type because it has spaces and gaps in the yeah. bottom of it so it, that they can... Exactly. The water can be let out when you're flooding the, 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 uh, the ashes out away from the corn because that's how you, you, know, you release the, the nutrients is by the nixtamalization mix, mixtamalization mix, mix, process. Yeah, I can't even pronounce that word. Yeah. Anyway, when they do that... They have to wash all that ash, that hardwood ash, which is the traditional way of doing it, off the, each kernel. And then they have to get the rest of the hull off of each kernel because it can't digest the, 
the hull. Uh, anyway, this is what the corn washing basket is used for. But then there are the very fancy baskets, which have the curls on them and which, you know, I, I remember one called the Pope's basket, which is this amazing basket created by Mary Adams that had many tiny baskets all around the outside of it. And, um, you know, sweet grass worked into it and just a beautiful shape um, as, a, as, a, as an item of amazing beauty. Um, anyway, I, I got to know those women. I got to know all of those basket makers up there and, and really, um, you know, do what I could to promote their work as well yeah. by showing their work in New York City, as, among other places, and selling their work for them too. So at the same time, I mean, you're showing Mohawk women baskets and art and things like that. And at the same time, there was a community of Mohawk people that were living in Brooklyn, New York, Men, in particular, from the Gunawagi Reservation of Montreal, um, Akwazasni as well, and also from you know the Seneca territories and things, also Onondaga, um, iron workers again, who yes. were down there, and yes. um, a lot of people may not know and realize that these native people had a very integral role in the building of New York City. What is Ab New York City today? Absolutely, you know, and uh, and of course I got to know a man named Julius Cook, who was an Akwesasne Mohawk, who supervised the welding of both towers of the World Trade Center. Wow. And, you know, um, and he was ahead of schedule. You know, he was so good at what he did and, and as a supervisor yeah. that his crew was ahead of schedule in their work, and they told him to slow down. He was going too fast. <laughs> <laughs> Tough old Mohawk guy. And, and this guy, you know, when he retired, he took up silversmithing, and he just produced the most beautiful items in silverwork, taught himself how to do silverwork. You know, um, just amazing guy. And, of course, many others, you know, we got to see as we were living in Brooklyn, you and I and yeah. your mother and, you know, friends, uh, over on uh, at the corner of Dean Street, and I can't think of that other one that ran there that the Mohawk iron workers used to hang out in the parking lot there, uh, yeah. young guys. And, you know, so we, yes, that was all going on at the same time. And periodically, some of those iron workers would pop into the gallery, you know, uh, when they were in town and they had time off and they were looking for some place to go. Got rained out or something <laughs> yeah, or something. whatever that was. <laughs> and also it's important to, to mention that um, a lot of these guys who were, you know, iron workers and making a living and trying to support their families back home because there just wasn't work that paid the way that iron working did. But these guys were also weekend warriors where they would, you know, on that Friday, pack up their vehicle and drive back up, you know, to Gunawagi or Akwazastin, whatever that was, spend time with family, but also try to get a lacrosse game in yeah. <laughs> when they could. And, and some of these guys worked what they call four tens. Mm. They would work four days a week, 10 hours a day. So they got Friday off to take off Thursday night, then have Friday, Saturday, and Sunday get back on the road to drive back to New York and go back to work Monday morning. Yeah, amazing. And, and that's a long ride. Up to Aquasas. It's about eight hours or so. Eight probably, hours or probably more. that. Yeah. Probably all of that. And I'll, I, my intention is to get out and maybe talk to some of these folks as well and talk to some of the, um, you know, iron workers and things like that. Because I think it's an important story to tell as well, um, is to focus on um, who those people were and, and their um, role that they played in building New York City and, and the footprint that they're a part of there. Yeah. So, so let's go back to, um, you know, we're in New York City. 
you've got galleries running. You've you've traveled now the, the the United States and have been exposed to all sorts of native and indigenous art and things like that and communities and culture. 1985, gone on again. Yeah, 1985. Um, John Mohawk came down to visit me during that year. I brought him down as a speaker at the gallery. And, and John casually said to me, are you sick of New York yet? <laughs> as I had been there for um, seven years. And I said, you know, as a matter of fact, I'm getting sick of living in New York. And I was mainly because it was so expensive to live there. And I, and I was so removed from our longhouse and the tradition. And it was tough to get home for things. I would go back and forth, but it was still tough. And I said, yeah, I am. And he said, well, you know, there's a job that's coming open. And he explained to me at the time it was called Ganigero. He explained to me what Ganigero was. And what was that? A Seneca historic site in Victor, New York, which was going to be developed. And, um, you know, there was, it was at the very ground level, and it was just, you know, an idea there were a group of advisors who were getting together with the New York State Office of Parks and the Bureau of Historic Sites to develop a master plan for the development of Ganondagan, what becomes Ganondagan State Historic Site. And the first site dedicated to Native, Native Americans. It's yeah. the only site dedicated to Native Americans in New York, the first one. And it's the oldest historic site because it goes all the way back to 1687. Um it opened to the public in 1987. Um, it uh, was listed on the na as a national landmark in 1964. Very unique in that way because there are not many native sites listed as a national landmark east of the Mississippi. There are many sites west of the Mississippi, but not east. And that's a piece I didn't know about. So this is it sits on the top of Boughton Hill in Victor, New York, now Victor, New York. Um, traditional Seneca territory, um, you have the opportunity to leave an art career in New York City, you know, starving artist, been through the ringer, a divorce, <laughs> now trying to figure out what do I do with myself, my life next, and an opportunity to reconnect again and not knowing that sort of unknowing of like, well, what am I getting myself into? I'm going to be moving into the suburb of Rochester, New York, which you know, it, it's an interesting thing is that where Onondawaga people or Seneca people are now situated are in western New York, out in the Cattaraugus Territory, the Tonawanda Reservation, or the uh, Allegheny Territory. The original homeland and the original territory was here in Victor, Canandaigua, now present-day Victor, and, Can and Canandaigua was actually a traditional name. And almost void of any indigenous people at that time. None of us really not much existence here, not much presence here. Um, you know, this being predominantly a farming community, as, like I said, I mentioned a, a suburb of um, Rochester yeah. in the Genesee Valley or the floodplain or the, the kind of the, you know, the edges of the Genesee Valley, which again is significant because that's where our family name comes from, the Jemison family name. Letchworth State Park and Mary Jemison, and you're a ninth generation descendant of eighth eighth generation. Eighth generation. I'm the ninth generation. You are the ninth. Okay. Well, and of course, that whole thing was, you know, the very first thing that I would encounter when I would 
begin to do, go out and speak about Gananda again and, and begin to get interest in, you know, the fact that there was going to be a, a new New York State historic site. Let's lay the land one more time, though. <coughs> this was a farm up on top of a hill. Yeah, I'll describe it. <laughs> so when I arrived, you know, I did, I did two interviews. And I believe the first interview I did was downtown in, in, in Victor in what was then the town hall. And I sat down with people from the Bureau of Historic Sites, and they interviewed me for the possibility of becoming the site manager. This was very unusual because I was not in the civil service system, mm. and this was a managerial position that was opening up. And so this was a very unique situation. And, you know, they had to find someone who had experience of the kind that is taking something from the ground up, you know, so making something brand new. And, um, and the closest thing I had was the gallery, the development of the gallery in New York City, you know, and, and the other programs that I had done. So that I had done some things like this. Um, but when I, I came back for the second interview, and, and I came back with Grandma and Grandpa, hmm. Ansley and Margaret, and we drove up to Victor, and uh, I think I was going to interview at the house, I, I kind of think, anyway. And I suddenly realized, you know, this is an abandoned farm, totally overgrown with weeds, crumbling down, you know, structures like an old uh, barn, a chicken coop, um, you know, the remains of a, uh, a place where they used to sell apples and cider, which had then been turned into a welding shop, and there were these additions built off it. And the house was a complete wreck. Archaeologists had been there and worked on the site, and they had walked in with muddy boots and left it all, you know, on the floor, and it was just, I mean, it was a wreck. The house hadn't been heated, so the walls were cracked, the ceilings were cracked, and, you know, this was going to be my residence. <laughs> That's where the site manager lives. <laughs> That's where the site manager was going to live. And I took a look at this place, and I said, I am not moving in here until this is all fixed up. <laughs> livable. I would not move in here and watch this process. So I said, we got to work out something. And, and so they've rented an apartment where we yeah. could live until the thing got finished. But at any rate, I was really questioning my thinking when I saw this really up close and personal for the first time. I think I really focused on the actual condition of the <laughs> What house. did grandma and grandpa say to you? I don't know if they were... Uh, against it or that I think they were supportive, you know, that I was going to move back, come back from New York City. Uh, I think they were supportive of that idea. But, but still two hours away from where they still were Still, I was going to be two hours away from home. I would have to, you know, drive down the throughway to get home. Um, and, you know, so I, I don't remember them ever saying anything in the negative about it. I just remember them bringing me over for the interview. And I must have flown into Buffalo, and then they drove me over, and then I was going to have to fly back because I was still in New York City, uh, for the, even during that second interview. So um, anyway, and it, at any rate, I got the job. But there was one more part that I want to make uh, explain. The, there was an advisory group all made up of Native people, yeah. people who were Seneca, Tuscarora, Onondaga, and um, I decided that I wanted the job. And so I was going to go to the home of the different people that I knew were members of the advisory group to tell them of my interest and to tell them that I was sober. 
that was the important thing I wanted mm-hmm. to, to share with them. Is that I had gotten sober, and I felt as though I could do this job, and I needed their support in order to get hired. Yeah. And, um, and so I wanted to learn from them, and I wanted to do the best job I could. You know, and I just kind of laid that out to them. And so I went to the home of Chief Corbett Sundown. Yeah. Um, of course, I had an opportunity to talk to John. John uh, Mohawk. John Mohawk. I had an opportunity to talk to Orrin Lyons. Um, I'm pretty sure I probably talked to Carson because he was one of those members of the advisory committee at the time. And so I just basically laid it out that, you know, um, this is what I was thinking. And in the end, as I said, I got hired, you know, mm-hmm. to, to take the position. And that, that then made, meant that um, the master plan that they had created um, had to be carried out. But in order to do that, they had to get a second grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to actually do the work, which included making a film, doing two publications, uh, producing some pamphlets that would be about the site um, and creating a film. And so this was all to then create the story about Ganondigan, what had happened there, what was significant about this place, and then this yeah. was all going to be print and publish material that was going to then go out and be able to you know, tell that story, I guess. Yes, and, and you know, some of it was the history of the actual French invasion of Ganondigan in 1687, and then other... Another publication really focused on the art. We call it art from Ganondigan. And these were the artifacts that were discovered by archaeologists who dug on the site. And we decided that it was okay to publish images of it, even though we were trying to protect the site from the possibility of people coming in there and, and uh, you know, violating the site by digging up graves. Sure. Treasure hunters and things yes, like that. And, exactly. and that was happening. Amateur and avocational archaeologists you know, yeah. were coming in there and professional archaeologists later. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, and it's a, it was a different time. I mean, when I talk about 1985, it's a time period when the museums are not really that open toward me, especially the Rochester Museum and Science Center. They were in the process of opening up a new exhibit with a lot of Seneca material, and they weren't about to show me or let me see all the material that they actually had. They were kind of, you know, editing what I actually saw. And they kind of saw me as a threat, in a way. And so I was working with that, you know, possibility. And and then at the same time, I was doing this deep research to try and really understand the story, and then having to, as I came more to understand this story, and then wanting to have the, the background of us, ourselves, the, the Hodinasani, how did we, what were we like, and what is the basis of our knowledge and understanding when we confronted the French and we confronted all these other Europeans coming? And so, you know, I had to spend time with Chief Sundown, I spent time with Chief Jake Thomas, you know, Irving Paulus, Chief Irving Paulus, um, I also spent time with John and with Oren. Huron Miller. Huron Miller. Yeah. John and, Hur- and uh, Oren convinced me to go back to the University of Buffalo and, get, and work on a graduate degree in American studies uh, and focusing on Native American studies. And so I did that too. You know, 
know, and um, so then kind of became like a bit of a historian in that, and having to yeah. understand more of that that complex, complicated sort of relationship of indigenous people with native people with the you know the colonial past and, and history. But in that process, looking at it from the lens of like understanding the traditional people stories, the native people stories, working with community members to understand what that was. So then informing your direction as far as like, well, this is the, the work that I'm doing on behalf of my people. And this is the story that we want to tell and we want to present and carving out that space in a place at a historical site in New York state, which was not very native friendly at the time all either. No. And a very confrontational and you having to kind of like weather all of this and kind of, you know, and, and do the biddings of like the, the community members to make sure that you're telling the accurate proper story and then also having to educate yourself along the way learning the language learning the culture again you know and and this was what kind of came to me was that so the rmsc the rochester museum and science center is where you had mentioned um you know your original exposure to handsome lake was arthur parker mm -hmm. so arthur parker had done his work at Here. rmsc and at gonondagan and at gonondagan as well Yes. So it's an interesting just how cyclical all of this stuff has kind of all happened and that you've kind of like been kind of like pulled into this vacuum of to like where you are today and and how it all happened and, and, and that. So Yeah, I, one of the first articles I remember reading this, you know, in this new capacity was A History of the Genesee Country written by Arthur Parker. Hmm. And he's telling the story of the history before Europeans arrived. And the work and what was happening with the Seneca in relation to the Erie, in relation to the neutral, and the other groups of people that are around the Great Lakes, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, so having to, you know, understand that, and and at the same time, uh, come to terms with the fact that Arthur Parker was one of those digging up our ancestors' remains, digging up our people, which was a common practice of the time. Yeah. I mean, and was, and and the really incredible part was a man that I had known as a child in Irving and his name was Everett Burmaster was an assistant or was the person who did the digging for Arthur Parker. He was the guy with the shovel, literally. And I had known him because he ran a gas station up on Route 5 and 20 in Buffalo Road in Irving. And my father introduced me to him. You know, this is when he's later, this is later in his life when he's now retired from being an archaeologist. Oh, okay. Yeah. Gotcha. Everett. I was wondering the timing of that all. Yeah, no, he had retired by then. I'm talking about the 60s, and he was working with Parker maybe as far back as the 1919 period when he first went there, and, and certainly then later on the 20s or 30s. So be. was Burmaster native? or Burmaster was non-native. He was a non-native non guy. Non-native guy who, how he got to know Parker exactly, I don't know, but he had an association also with the Buffalo Museum and Science Center. Hmm. Uh, and, and with the Rochester Museum. Well, the, the work that he did with Parker went to the Rochester Museum of Science Center. And that's interesting that this guy, Burmaster, who spent <clears throat> that time with Arthur Parker at that time on these historic sites, Agonon again, and then decided to take, you know, up residence, or maybe he returned back to where he lived. He came from that. He yeah. came from Irving. Back Irving to live around. Burmasters like, lived around there. A, a, a native, a Cataraugus, the Cataraugus yeah. Reservation. So. Yeah, he's literally just across the creek from the Cataraugus Reservation, you know, and he probably worked on the Cataraugus Reservation with Parker, too, yeah. because Parker dug a place called the Silverheels site, oh. you know, um, 
and he uh, no doubt was one of those there digging too. Yeah, I, I could guess. Interesting. So, all right. So, 1989 um, was a significant date for me in particular um, because that was the first time that we had taken a family vacation, mm-hmm. you and I, and Jeanette, your now wife, and, and um, we went to New Mexico for the first time. We went to Albuquerque and Santa Fe, and as mentioned before, you know, my mother and father had separated when I was young. Um, I grew up partially between the Allegheny Reservation and then also uh, Brooklyn, New York. So I lived in New York City and had some exposure to Manhattan and Brooklyn and, you know, all of that. Um, Jokingly, you know, when I was a child, one of my cousins, Butch Oldshield, used to call me a fresh air kid because I had lived in New York City. (laughs) And then he would, they would like send me back to the res during the summer times and I could be, you know, part of this, my community and the culture and all of that again and be around my family and everything. And at the time, there was this program that they were taking kids out of the city and moving them out to the country and kind of giving them this fresh air, getting them out of, the, out of New York City. Um, and so, you know, in 1989, I was living with my mother. Um, she was with another uh, man at the time. He was an iron worker in New York City. And we were living in a place, New Jersey, of all places. My Lord, I don't tell many people that I lived in New Jersey, but <laughs> for two years, I lived there. Um, Keysby, Woodbridge area, uh, went to Ford's Middle School and um, had never been any place in the world, you know, really. And um, eventually, you know, and so I don't even remember how it all went down or what happened, but um, my dad had a, did you have an exhibit out there or were you doing something Possibly, showing? I, I'm not sure. I, can. I can't even remember can't now remember either, too. but yeah. took us to New Mexico, took me to New Mexico and it just blew my mind. Um, first time I ever seen wide open spaces. I mean, here I was living in New York city, the concrete jungle and things like that, living in the hills of Allegheny, you know, you can see for a ways there, but like never, like I could see when I went to, you know, the Southwest and seeing the colors and the sun and the, you know, just the, the beauty of it all. And immediately a place that I fell in love with. And, um, I remember telling myself that at some point in my life, I want to live out here. And um, that's eventually what happened, but it was much later after I had graduated from college. Um, um, sometime around 2001, um, right around the same time as the World Trade Center um, happening. Um, 1990, um, you know, in 1989, like I said, was a very significant pivotal moment. But 1990, um, I decided that I wanted to move in with my father. And um, so here I was moving out to the suburbs of Rochester, New York, and out to the country, you know, from where I had been living down in New Jersey, which was the suburbs of New York City, um, to now moving up to this, again, farmhouse-type place up on top of a hill. I didn't know much about, you know, the fact that that's where we were originally from and things like that. And I had the good fortune of, like, living on the traditional site and the territory, the original territory of my ancestors, my people. And not really knowing the gravity of it all and not knowing the significance, but also then being exposed to all the different people that you had mentioned before who were some of your mentors and the people who were part of the advisory committees and things like that, them passing through our doors and having, you know, me walking into the kitchen and they're sitting there and you guys are having coffee and listening to stories and the exposure that I had at that time. Exposed to chiefs, clan mothers, um, faith keepers, um, you know, historians, really amazing, brilliant minds and people. And I guess at times, I mean, as a kid, you know, you don't really, you know, understand how fortunate you are in those moments. But, um, 
you know, when you mentioned those names to me, and I remember how powerful I, I always felt those people were, I guess, at times, you know, when I used to go to the Longhouse as a kid and things like that and walk into different spaces and seeing these people in these roles, um, how fortunate I was. And then for them to acknowledge me and, you know, and, and recognize me as your son um, and being a person of, um, of value, I guess, at that time, and not really knowing my place in all of that, but um, just how cool, I guess, looking back on it, and now reading and, and you know taking up history, you know, and, and looking at books and things like that, hearing their pe- these people's names and actually knowing these people, you know, personally is uh, pretty amazing. So 1990, I moved to uh, Ganondigan myself, and that's where really a lot of my f- more formal teaching and understanding, other than like you know language classes and things like that, growing up on the reservation. <clears throat> and it was a weird thing because you know when I grew up in Allegheny. Um, you know, I went to Seneca School, and I went to the Head Start down there. And I remember my very first language teacher was Hazel Thompson, um, who one of my good friends, Joe Thompson, his mother, was one of my very first language teachers. And, um, and uh, you know, and then it was later on that I went to Salamanca School District and the Seneca School, and that was where most of the Seneca native kids in the city of Salamanca went to school. And when we had to go and do Seneca language class, we used to have to get pulled out of class. We would get pulled out of like maybe a recess or whatever that was. And they would take us into the basement of the school in like this back dark area where there was like sort of like these round tables and like a whiteboard or maybe a chalkboard or something. And it was like, okay, time to start talking Indian, you know, and start using your language and things. And it was like such a really odd sort of way of like giving us this like you know, this reverence. And here we are, we're on the reservation in our community. And we were like, basically like shamed into like having to like go and like be Indian for like, you know, however long it was that like our class had lasted for. And at that time, um, Sandy Doughty or Sandy Krause was our teacher. Um, you know, Dar Doughty's then, you know, later on his, his wife and, um, and she's still teaching the language and she's part of the faith keeper school down in Allegheny. And um, has done a lot of work to uh, preserve the language and continue that that um, that that work. Um, so you know, I'm thankful to them and thankful for you know her her you know, willingness to take on that role, that task. But really, such a weird place. And um, you know, so I guess getting back to like me coming to to Victor, um, and then going to school at Canadagua which was like the original homeland, the original territory of the Seneca people, the chosen place or the chosen spot, whatever you want to uh, argue around that, that um, translation. The only Seneca person there, you know, um, maybe there was a couple Mohawk kids, half Mohawk kids or whatever that was, mixed, you know, kids. And um, the only Seneca person, and then also wearing the name Jemison around, um, you know, and having this sort of real not knowing that I was grounded in this place that like I had this, this history here, um, and this, this background here and having to learn that while being there. Um, and you know, being in a place that was challenging at the time and a couple different times where, you know, the, the mascot of our school was the Braves, you know, it was this native mascot. And there was at times that people were dressed up in native, you know, outfits and war paint and war bonnets and things like that. And, there was a sort of consciousness around like, oh, is it appropriate to have, you know, these native mascots and things like that? And then a microphone in my face and I probably made some kind of half-assed dumb <laughs> response about it. And 
the difficulty and the challenge of like being a native person and being sometimes like the spokesperson, um, you know, when you're not really quite sure even about yourself, you know, being a teenager and having to have some sort of a position or a, you know, a stance or a statement on this thing. I, I was ill-equipped, you know, I, I, I have to admit, um, I would probably hate myself if I could hear that recording today of like what I may have said or what my position was at the time. Um, but, you know, I did a lot of learning and I did a lot of like growth while I was here. So I think that, um, again, you know, by virtue of the exposure that I had, the people that were around me, um, you know, the, the people that worked for you here at Ganon again, I mean, really, um, some really interesting people along the way, um, who became teachers to me as well. Um, so I, I really, there's, there's just not enough gratitude that I can express for like this opportunity, even though I think probably a lot of time I was probably walking around a snot nose and whatever else and living here <laughs> and not fully appreciating what this place was. Um, and what it is still today. And, um, and to see the growth and what you've done with it um, is, is absolutely amazing. I mean, it's now grown into a monster, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. And, and it's been through your hard work, your determination, your, your focus, and your, um, this growth that you've done in this, this um, process that you've been through of, like, you know, where you came from. You know, you were an artist. <laughs> and along this way you were you know wore so many different hats again and and you too you know having to be the only you know when you came up here um and it wasn't a very friendly place a lot of times and even today you know now victor has become sort of this hot you know place for you know it's a bedroom community of rochester and it's also this very highly developed area for um you know businesses small businesses and you know production or whatever that is and you know, it's a, it's a really hot real estate market right now. And you've kind of been this like, you know, postage stamp in the middle of all these like, you know, McMansions that are blowing up all around you. And yet you've been able to maintain a toehold and also been able to maintain like, you know, that by virtue of using the state, but also using your, you know, your native culture to be able to protect this place and to be that person who's been the one who's really kind of maintained the integrity of this place and also developed and told the story. And I know you've had a lot of help along the way and you've had a lot of people who have come and gone and throughout all of that, you know, it's just amazing to, to know the work that you've done and, you know, Jeanette, you know, coming along and the programming that she's done and the work that she's done to tell our story and to bring, other cultures, other native peoples, people from, you know, New Zealand, the Maori people to come here and perform. And this becoming now like a bit of an, a hub for indigenous culture and indigenous thinking and minds and people. And I remember, you know, people who would come from like the territories and the communities and things like that, they would take a two hour drive and just, they want to just come out here and walk, listen to the wind or hear something. And, um, it was a very strong and powerful place growing up. Um, a person that has gone unmentioned in this podcast and is a very important person to me and also my father is my brother, Brendan. And, um, you know, I came to know Brendan later in life. Um, you know, I was already in high school at the time. He was already maybe early, early 20s, 1920, somewhere around there when I finally knew that I had a brother. Um, we won't get into all that today. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's a whole other story. But I think that... Um, he was a person that came into my life at the time that I needed an older brother. And, um, and he came and spent some time here as well and was able to heal himself and bring himself to a place 
Um, he was a, living a rock star lifestyle down in New York City. Um, he was doing all sorts of different things, playing in rock bands and doing different things. And he too then needed an escape out of New York City. Um, and here I had been in the suburbs out of New Jersey. I needed to get out of there, come back to come back to our homeland to find myself. My brother did the same thing. My father, he did the same thing. And um, what a very significant and interesting place. And so for those of you who have never been to Ganondagan, you know, take the trip. Um, my father has built an amazing, beautiful place here. There's a traditional longhouse that's been, you know, reconstructed so you can see what a longhouse would have looked like at the time. There's this now um, Seneca Arts and Cultural Center um, where, you know, he's got a, a gallery where exhibits are being displayed. There's historical artifacts, contemporary art that's there. There's a performance space that's in this as well. There's, a, you know, films and stories, um, interpretive guides that come here. There's walking trails. There's so many things that can kind of bring you back and give you a little bit of history and, and understanding. And once again, you know, when I kind of questioned before about, like, the traditional and the contemporary, that's all here at Ganondagan as well because you have the, the, the landscape is still here. It may not have looked like what it did in 1687 and things like that, but there's still walking trails and Native people's hands and feet had touched this ground and now there's these contemporary buildings and this contemporary art and this like contemporary interpretation of what Seneca, Haudenosaunee, Iroquois culture is. And this place has been a place where like many people have passed through here. You know, we have have had conversations that living in that house at Ganondagan, up in the farmhouse there, you live there for thirty plus years, About and three um, years. And in that time, I think probably, what did you count on a couple of different hands, maybe a couple of toes, that there was, you know, maybe 12 to 15 plus people or kids that had lived there at different times or spent time there or... About 18. 18 people. Um, and they weren't even like really like foster parents or anything like that. It wasn't even a, a foster situation. It was just more or less that people were just kind of in a place at a time that they needed a little bit of Ganond again. They needed to be here. Um, they needed to be a part of this. And, um, yeah. Well, some of this came about as a result of the uh, youth and elder gatherings that we had. We would bring elders here to Ganondagan. We would bring young people, teenagers, really, from reservation situations, from towns, from urban situations. And they would, they would spend a week with us, uh, or the better part of a week with us, and um, be exposed to their traditions, which they were not getting the same exposure to at home. And um, so we, we brought many, and, and some of those then wound up staying with us for an extended period of time. And some of the exposure was, you know, life skills, um, you know, exposure to elders, yeah. sitting down and listening to them tell stories. At one time, you guys had enough representation here where you're actually able to do a mock grand council where you had representation of enough of the clans and enough of the people from those, those territories, those, you know, the, 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 the nations and things. Um, but then also, you know, you brought in people who were martial artists and things like that, and also people who were um, familiar with traditional cooking and foods and things like that, and reintroducing traditional diets to young people who may have been living in food deserts in, New York, in, you know, in urban environments and things like that or had never been exposed to that. Yeah. Um, crafts you know, making and things like that, lacrosse sticks, you know, and all, all sorts of things. Gastolas, yeah. Pottery, you know, 
some uh, leather work, things like that, tanning of a hide. You know, we did we did a lot of different things with with young people, um, and I still run into them. You know, I still run into those people that came here. Um, we still have good feelings toward one another. We're always happy to see each other, and my my biggest reward is that many of those young people that came here to the youth and elders gathering are doing important things in their communities. Many have learned to use their language and they can speak in our longhouse. There's a young woman who took over the traveling college up at Akwesasne who came to our youth and elders gathering. Um, There are others who've gone on to college, gone on to other, know very responsible positions and um, and they're all over there you know there's there's a chief who was just raised up at Onondaga you know there's um, others who uh, again as I say you know we were just one part of their life but at one point in time they came through the youth and elders gathering and to us um, you know we're so happy to see those who were able to make it and and then we had the experience of some who didn't make it. You know, yeah. they, they couldn't, for one reason or another, they couldn't handle it. And things happened, and, and we lost them. And, uh, and that's sad, you know. We, we think of them. Uh, we, we grew close to them, and, and we were sorry to lose them through accident and through other things. So, you know, we've had a whole range of experiences. Um, but as you were pointing out, you know, Ganond again was the thing that brought us together. Yeah, and I think that, um, again, what was provided was just that space for people to come here and to find whatever it was that they were looking for, whatever answers they were, um, whatever messaging it was. Um, and and it's like, and it's. I'm glad you acknowledge that, that some of these folks had gone on and done things, significant work in their communities and have taken away some of the teachings and um, have shared them beyond here. And, you know, who knows where that reach is and what, what it is that they're doing with that. Mm-hmm. But also what's remarkable is also the commitment of the, the elders, the teachers, the people who came here and were committed to teaching and committed to making sure that there was a legacy and there was a tradition passed on. And, you know, that's, you know, where does that come from? Where, what is that drive? What is that, you know, what is that responsibility that those people felt that they needed to do that, um, yeah. You know, they, they, I mean, I remember here on Miller, you know, he, he talked about um, that he just thought it was so important to help the people, you know, that that was his role was to help the people. And, and whatever that entailed, if he knew things that he could share, he wanted to do that. You know, he, he didn't want to take it with him. He wanted to leave it and help and, others. And Huron was a guy that was, well, I guess it was Jake Thomas who was the one who was almost fluent in every one of the Haudenosaunee languages. And so was Huron. And yeah. Huron was a, was probably fluent at least in five. Yeah. Six. And so I think that that's something people that may not understand is that that's a very significant thing as well, is that even though the proximity of us all as, you know, individual nations and things like that, we do have our own cultures, we do have our own language, our own traditions and things. Mm-hmm. But to be able to span all five of those or all six of those nations and understand the language and be able to speak in that language because there's different inflections, there's sort of different accents and things like that. Dialogue. Dialogue. Dialect. Dialect, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, and the good thing was that 
I mean, we really reached out to all six nations. We, we had Cayuga, we had Seneca, we had Onondaga, we had Tuscarora, we had Mohawk, Oneida. You know, there were, there were always young people coming from all these different communities. And, and urban environments. And I said urban and, you know, uh, suburban and reservation. They all came together and, and uh, you know, just uh, it, the, the whole experience of having all these young people you know, living and working together. I mean, they had the responsibilities of, of washing dishes, of cooking, of, uh, you know, cleaning up around the camp, of, uh, you know, getting up at dawn, getting up with the sun and then going to a Thanksgiving, you know, I mean, words that come before all others. And uh, ter- we really flipped their whole schedule around. Instead of coming in at 5.30, they were getting up at 5.30 and, yeah. you know, and going to bed by 9.30, maybe 10 at the latest. Yeah, and there was also, um, yeah, roles assigned, responsibilities. You know, you guys kept a fire for, through the entire time. The whole time. Um, you know, and, and people fire had different, keeper. yeah, firekeeper was a position and a role. Um, you know, and after they would get up and do their morning Thanksgiving and, and welcome the sun, then they would get into like some martial art, you know, and work, and, out. And work out and try to yeah, get their blood. About hours work out before we got, sat them down to listen to teaching. And they had to stay awake while the te- teachers were talking, and they had to be respectful, ask permission to leave the tent if they had to go out. And, um, you know, then in the afternoon there was the hands-on portion, so there was, you know, the actual doing of things, not just sitting and listening to people. Going out into the woods and do- learning tracking, learning to identify animal tracks, learning how to build fire without matches. Shelters. Yeah, learning how to build shelters, you know, a temporary shelter. If you got caught someplace where you, you didn't have a tent and, you know, the weather's going to drop on you and you don't want to freeze to death out there, um, you know, we, we taught them basic survival skills. And your brother learned those too. You know, yeah. and your brother then went on to teach those skills as well. Yeah. And he traveled with those people that came from the tracking project. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot that was gained and, and, you know, when I meet people that were here, they remember different aspects. You know, it might've been the tracking part of it. It might've been the fire building part of it. It might've been, you know, um, just meeting people, just the meeting of all these different kids that came from different communities, you know, and, uh, all of those things were, uh, a part of their experience. Yeah, I mean, all just remarkable work. I mean, and again, that just having that space, I think, is what was really the most um, important about it all. And again, too, I mean, in you know, New York State probably didn't know a lot of what all was going on at times here, you know. And it was, <laughs> you know, they kind of gave you a little bit of um, a little bit of leeway to, you know, that this was a new thing. It was really undefined terms as far as like what was the expectations. And they also gave the the space and the you know the that rain a little bit that 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 run a little bit to kind of like go with it and see like what are the what are the boundaries you know what are the what what's the what's the breadth of this and and to get into that was I remember you know Jeanette had wrote a um, a a grant a Kellogg's grant I believe it was yeah. and you looked around you and I are both shoe hounds and. Some of the kids from the communities and the territories kind of came in with some shoes that looked like they were probably due for a um, an up an upgrade, and you guys actually took a bunch of kids to the sporting goods shop, Dicks, and bought all these kids brand new shoes, brand new sneakers, and we we gave them a price range. We said 
You can choose anything you want, as long as it's within this price range, and it fits you, and you like it, it's yours. You know, and <laughs> I mean, they, they couldn't believe it, you know, that, and, the, and the dicks itself, we went after hours, and they were very happy to work with us, and, you know, girls and boys, you know, getting shoes, getting new sneakers. <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was fantastic, really. They they all came out there with new sneakers to wear and take home with them, you know, and just something they had never had, you know, that opportunity to do really like that. Um, yeah, there were there were just so many things, you know, the idea of, you know, you're bringing together boys and girls at teenage years. Know you got to keep an eye on them, you know, and you got to have chaperones, and, and you got to lay down ground rules here. You know, we're not here to hook up; we're here for you to learn things. Yeah. You have to help us do that. You know, you're going to be we're relying up, upon you to, you know, be on your best behavior. And I think that you know another thing that's um, important to touch on a little bit here is the urban environment, the urban native experience. And also the, you know, the suburban, but then also the, the traditional or the native or the, you know, the people from territory, from communities. And, you know, you were exposing them to maybe um, social dances, not quite traditional or medicine dances or anything like that, but social. social dances where some of these kids may not have ever had the opportunity to, to do the dance and to yeah. feel what that was and to kind of, you know, be vulnerable in these spaces, I mean, some of these kids that were coming the, from the urban environments, some of them were gang gang bangers and things like that, or yeah. tough kids or whatever, grew up tough, grew up hard, yeah. to a place where that they now had to become sort of these like vulnerable people to then realize that like, well, I don't know anything about my culture. To, to go on with that, you know, we had a talking circle. Mm. And in that talking circle, when it came your turn, your job was to talk from your heart about what was going on with you, you know, about anything that was a, a problem that you were encountering and that you wanted to share, you know, um, and how you were feeling about the experience you were having, you know. And being there. And being being there at that time. And, uh, you know, we, we just really, we put it in the hands of the people running the talking circle to handle it, you know, because then things would come out. Kids would say things and we... We also made them understand, you know, nothing leaves this circle. What you tell us here stays within this circle. We're not going to be talking about you and your experience, you know, and blabbing it around because, you know, this is a, you're in a very vulnerable situation, but so are we. We're yeah. going to share some things with you, too, that are from the gut, you know, from the heart about what's, what's been happening and what's been going on. Our personal experiences so that you realize you're not the first one that ever had this happen to them, you know. Yeah. Um, but we heard some things that were very tough, you know, and, and uh, realized what our kids were up against, you know, where they were coming from. And, um, and, and, and to have, you know, so the, the one thing I would say is, and this was very consistent, was there would be ones coming to us who, when they first came, were pretty skeptical about the whole thing, maybe, let's say. Me included. Yeah. <laughs> and who would then turn to us and say, uh, can I stay? I don't want to go home. Can I come back next year? If I can't stay now, can I make sure that I can come back next year? And, you know, they, they would just beg for a little more time. Could I have, can I stay for another week or something like that? 
And then we'd have to evaluate, can, can we do that? Can we take somebody in and have them stay with us for another week or two or the rest of the summer or whatever it may have been that they wound up doing? Um, but that's how impactful it was to them that, that this, you know, left them uh, changed. Changed yeah. them. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think I was a part of some of those conversations as well. And, you know, me being, you know, a resident here, living here. <laughs> um, and I think right after my, you know, my high school years were here, you know, the college years when I was off, more and more young people had kind of passed through these doors and spent time here. And, you know, you guys were able to come up with funding and resources for kids to do internships here and, and do deeper dives into cultural understandings or like do harvests of like different materials and things. And, you know, just a, a, that, like I said, I mean, that, I guess that deeper dive into like, what does it mean to be here? And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I don't know where you document all of that in a way that you can kind of tell that story about like what this place has been and what it's meant to a lot of people, you know, at, at the end of the day, I mean, now it's, it is this other thing where it's this historical site. It's this, um, this, this, uh, living, breathing, um, place, but this is all information that, I mean, I think, you know, is part of this legacy. And, and, and what is that again about this, like this, this hill up on top of, you know, well, you know, I guess the thing is that it is a living site too, you know. Yeah. I mean, many of the historic sites, you could say, you know, they're they're telling a story about something that used to be there, you know, and then they maybe recreate a little bit of the feeling of that. But here, this is a culture that is still alive, and new people come to work here, and this is one of the things that I've always enjoyed, and I've tried, and I explain to people that come to work here. They may come and they may not know a lot. They may know a little bit about who they are. But they're going to learn more about who they are while they're working here, Mm. both from what they're going to learn in addition to what they knew, but what they're going to learn from presenting what they knew to people who don't know and who then want to ask questions, and they have to be able to answer that question. And then they may have to talk about themselves, and they it's up to them. I, I've always said, you choose to say what you wish. I mean, if you want to tell them more about yourself, that's up to you, but nobody is forcing you to. But regardless, it's interesting because if you grew up in the suburb of Rochester and you're Oneida, I mean, that's what you did. And so you have a unique experience, you know, that, that others have not had. And, um, so you have that opportunity to tell somebody about that so they realize, you know, it's not a monolithic group. It has, we are individuals. We're a part of a larger group of people. We're a part of a nation where we have a clan and whatever else we may have. And um, all of that has figured who we are as, you know, is a part of who we are. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this is ongoing. You know, we, we've had so many different young people come and work here and for long periods of time, for short periods of time, and, um, and all of them have found a way to, to fit in, you know, and to contribute whatever it was that they could contribute while they were here. I've been very fortunate in that way. I, I just, you know, I've always said, I mean, if I had to sit down and, and try to create a job description for the <laughs> job that I was going to go and take, 
I would have never thought of something this good. I wouldn't have. So in the end, even though when I arrived and I saw this deserted farm, um, it became far more than that. And it is because of the people and of the story of the place and of all of those who have come here and helped me to understand what I understand today. And, uh, and it's true that, as you put it, the New York State didn't always know what was going on. You know, and there was, at times, groups that, or people who may have been less supportive than others, but they let me do my thing. You know, and instead of like standing over me and like trying to micromanage everything that I did, you know, I remember some of them saying to me, I don't know what you're doing. Maybe I'm glad I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> and others saying, you know, what are you, what do you do? You know, and then when I would explain it to them, this is part of the work. You know, I mean, I just have to tell you it is. I mean, you have to believe me. You know, yeah. if I'm doing repatriation work for the Seneca Nation in Tonawanda, that's part of my work, you yeah. know, it, 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 you can't really separate that. And I know it doesn't sound, because nobody else is doing that, yeah. but that's what has to be done here, you know. And uh, if I'm going after corn, that's part of the work. I have to go where the corn is, and I have to pick it up and bring it back here, and, you know, then we're going to process it. That's part of the work. So we haven't even touched on that piece yet, is, yeah. you know what I mean? And that's a whole other conversation <laughs> as well, um, is... The Iroquois White Corn Project that is now here and situated here at Ganondigan. And, you know, was an impetus of, you know, um, John Mohawk, who initially started that in Cataraugus. And then, it, it you know, after his passing, it kind of went through a couple different places. I'm going to just say this. John Mohawk was a genius. And his genius is still being realized. And I was very lucky that. You know, John and I knew each other from the time we were in high school, and we didn't always maintain contact all that time, but when I got back together with him again, I had a lot of respect for who he was. And um, in time, John and I, you know, John, I was learning from John, and I was working with John, and I was, you know, John could see what I was doing. It was a good thing, you know, and... Uh, and when he passed and the White Corn Project was just going to, you know, end, I just decided that it, it shouldn't and, and uh, pick it up and, and move it here and get it back up again. And, and, uh, and it took a while, but now we can see how much it has had some influence on the Seneca Nation, how much it's had some influence even at the Oneida Nation, for our own people, for our farmers, you know, just... It, it is just supporting. And then in that whole time period, then this whole movement toward heirloom seed and toward food sovereignty and toward, you know, uh, really going back to our own traditional agriculture, all of that came about, you know, uh, simultaneously. I don't, I'm not trying to take credit for all of that yeah. at all. I just happened to be in the middle of it too, you know, thinking this was the right direction to go in. And, uh, and so again, I, I, those opportunities are here, you know, that that um, there would be no way that anybody could have contemplated all of it that was going to come about, you know. may have maybe a broad outline of what the master plan is, but then all the other things, they just, they in, in time came about. 
So we're going to take one more quick break there, and then we are going to come back and wrap this up. We've probably got another 10 minutes, I promise you, and then we will let um, Peter Jemison off the hook from there. Okay, so we're back, and um, we're going to try to wrap this thing up here. We you know, both agreed that we've covered a lot here. It's a lot to digest. I mean, we're well over two hours into this thing now. Uh, thank you for those of you who have hung in here and have, have listened to this whole thing. If you've maybe tuned it out or maybe it's something that's in the background while you're doing chores or work around the house or whatever that is, uh, maybe you've dipped in, dipped back out. But, um, you know, really, I just want to say, Yahweh, for you um, supporting this program and actually taking the interest. Um, I think that the person that we have as a subject today is, um, I think he was, a, he was a good starting point for us. And um, I think that there's much growth beyond this. And I think that that's kind of where we want to wrap this thing up at is, you know, going back to the, to the original message, the Ganon Yoke, that Thanksgiving address, and each of those different elements we kind of touched on in different ways here, you know, when we really kind of like not explicitly said, but like through all of that, the Ganon Yoke was guiding him through this thing, through this process. And at every different turn, something was relevant in there that maybe wasn't explicit, but there was something in there that you can take away from that. And I think that's what the richness of that message is of the Ganon Yoke, is that it can be interpreted in so many different ways as to like how this is significant and why it's important to have those moments of pause to acknowledge things, to be thankful for the fortune, the opportunity, the experience, the people who've passed through your life. All of that stuff is relevant. And I think that it's just something that in terms of being good human beings, it's a good thing to do. It's a good practice to kind of take that moment of like just an acknowledgement of a thank you for like, wow, I'm really appreciative of the fact that like I'm here right now. Um, you know, and, and I'm, I'm fortunate for the fact that like, I've either got a roof over my head or I know how to do this skill or I've got this ability because somebody has shown me and given me these experiences or these opportunities. And I mean, a person, I mean, who has been given more opportunities and experiences sits before me and I just, it's, you know, as his son, I didn't know all of this stuff, a lot of this stuff, you know, so this is again, a, a, a really good opportunity for me to get to know him on a deeper level, you know, and again, and now this thing will live in perpetuity, you know, digitally. And I can go back and listen to the His Ganonio and try to pick out pieces of it. You know, using the language, it can be a teaching tool for me. It can be a teaching tool for other people. The history and the culture of like where he came from and what he had built and what he had developed along the way with his art and things like that. To now a, a very significant structure that's at Ganondigan, which is the Longhouse, which I kind of glossed over. And, um, and that was a very significant piece and cog in the wheel, I guess, of like what Ganondigan is and what that took to get that thing built. And not we haven't even mentioned the Friends of Ganondigan, the organization that has helped do a lot of the fundraising and things like that. Because, again, it's a New York State site and you get a New York State budget, and yet you've been able to do all these other things to help fundraise and develop and grow and, you know, all these other these camps and these programs and things like that. That's not all part of the original New York State budget. That's all, you know, fundraising and fundraising. extra work and things yeah. like that. So let's go into the Longhouse a little bit, and then from there we'll try to wrap this thing up. Yeah, I just, I, in 1997, and before that, probably oh, maybe a couple of years before that, so in 95, I made a decision that it, we needed to bark Longhouse here. If you'll recall, I recall anyway, that Ganondagan at that time was limited to a very small uh, visitor center that held 25 people max. My house 
contained the offices for the, for the friends and also for the site. And we really had outside a, a walking trails. We had three hiking trails. Um, one of them was physically removed from Bowton Hill, was Fort Hill. And at any rate, I decided it was time to, to try to find people supportive of the idea of building a Seneca Bark Longhouse here. And um, I was very lucky that I had a, a, a commissioner of New York State Office of Parks by the name of Bernadette Castro, who, for, who really got the idea of having a Bark Longhouse here. And the one I chose to have built was based on an actual archeological excavation carried out by Charles Hayes III. Uh, and, uh, and in order to do this, I had to turn to a group called Ancient Lifeways Institute. And, and they were located out in a tiny town called Michael, Illinois. And uh, I had to go there and, and talk to them about the idea of building this Spark Longhouse. I, I chose them because they had built one other uh, indoors at um, the New York State Museum in Albany. And I think they had built a similar kind of a structure outdoors, but I can't remember the details. Of and they were doing traditional um, dwellings and things like that yeah, of their own they, people. They had built Illinois houses. They had built, uh, they were very involved with Cahokia and the, and the uh, exhibits that were at Cahokia. And, uh, and something that's also significant is that the Haudenosaunee people or the Iroquois, the Seneca people, these were the Kaskaskia people, I believe. Yep. We had gone out and done them a favor and wiped out their villages, we wiped out, them. attacked them and wiped out their people. We did. And the person who was in charge of this ancient Lifeways uh, organization was a Kaskaskia person who was familiar with this history. Well, and then his it, wife was. His, okay. His wife was, but he was Cherokee, but he knew mm -hmm. this history. He's the one that really investigated the history of these three groups that were Illinois. And he showed me and he taught me, you know, that, that story, uh, which, you know, I learned. Uh, but the, the other thing is, so we, we decided to build this park longhouse, and we, we used real timbers on the inside, and we had to get an artificial bark for the outside because the elm trees were all gone that we used to build our longhouses from. And uh, we had to strip the, uh, the, the hickory poles, lashings yeah, to get the lashings to tie the structure together, hiding the screws and bolts that we used. But here's the part that I want to share real quick, is that that longhouse has become a teaching tool a teaching tool that on the one hand, we bring fourth graders there, their parents and their teachers, and we teach them about the space that our people lived in. But on the other hand, we have learned from it in the process of our maintaining that structure, we have come to understand what it took to live in a building like that out on a landscape like this and that there were 150 of them and that, you know, what was, what was life like? for those people that lived in them. And, um, you know, every part of that becomes more revealed to you as you, you know, go through the time period of, of a summer to a winter and, and, you know, back to spring again, thinking in terms of how these people survived and how they fed themselves and how they were warm enough and, and you know, all the rest of it, clothed enough to be able to survive here. And how did they deal with all of these Europeans showing up to trade with them? 
all of those aspects came into our learning process. And um, <clears throat> so the idea of doing it was brilliant, you know, because it just uh, broadened our understanding. When I say our, I mean all of the interpretive staff that works at Ganond again, and uh, me. Yeah. And anybody else who has come in contact. Michael Galbin and Michael Tanya Loran. I mean, who Tanya would, Loran. Um, exactly. Tanya, Tanya Galbin now. Um, and, and the two of them have become, you know, masters in their trade and in their understanding of yeah. traditional implements and, you know, material goods and items and things like that. And I mean, and they're both, you know, historians, but then also just researchers and understanding and beautiful craftspeople as well. But on top yeah. of that, really knowledgeable about what it took to make those things, what it was to like use those things on a, on a day-to-day basis, but then also to be able to interpret it and what it meant for people at that time to be trading for these goods and using these things and why they were significant. And, and finding a source for things that were like the brass kettles that were coming to us, the rifles that were coming to us, you beads. Know, the, the beads that were coming to us, where were they coming from, and all these other trade items that entered into the fur trade system cloth and all the rest of it, the blankets, where were all these things coming from that were arriving here? And, and most recently, I had the opportunity to go to the Netherlands and, and learn the, the more, uh, the Dutch history that I didn't know as well as I knew, for example, the English story or the French story. Now I became more familiar with the Dutch story and the material culture and, and what was, how was that reflected in, in what uh, the Dutch people experienced? with a beaver hat, you know, and, and all of that. Um, so, you know, it, again, when I say, you know, Ganondagan is a continuous learning process. There's always something new to understand, to learn and understand. And um, it, it is, um, it is a very, and finally, I just came back from a facility manager's meeting that was held in Saratoga Springs. And I have said, and I was telling my son, that somehow or other, the group of people now in charge of the Bureau of Historic Sites and even my regional director are at that place where they really understand the importance of this historic site. And they are very supportive. And I don't have to try to convince people why we should do what we're doing they understand that we are, you know, we're ahead of the curve. We're doing things that are out there and that other people are going to catch up to and then some have caught up to and others are doing their way. But it, it's just, um, it's, it's refreshing and rewarding to have the support we have presently for, for what goes on. Yeah, and I think that it's... Um it's remarkable. I mean, it, to be a part of this, to have grown up here, um, to see all the people who have contributed, you know, the the staff, yourself, the community members, um, the volunteers. I mean, the volunteers are unsung heroes of this, of this place, really. And a lot of them have become part of the family, you know, in a lot of ways. I mean, I've grown up around a lot of these people who are non-Native people, but really believe in the mission and what Ganondagan is. And... Once again, I mean, it's 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 all encompassing, you know, within the Ganonio, you know, and what that all means and what those messages are, and those people have, you know, taken on those those experiences and those messages, and have now become a part of their lives in some different in some ways, yeah. and um, you know, so that is really the the impact and the power of a place like this, and um, 
you know, so again, I can't express enough um, my gratitude for, you know, having the opportunity to live here, to be, to be a part of this place, um, the significance it's played in my life and the role, um, how it's informed my, you know, my thinking, but also what it's also exposed me to in my path to like understanding more about myself and who I am. And along that way, you know, I mean, I've had, I've spent different times where I've worked here. I've just kind of either lived here or whatever that was, um, you know, and then, and then later on in life, you know, in the different, different positions and places I've traveled and been to, um, you know, this place has always been a significant piece of my life and it will always be, um, you know, going forward. And, you know, and I, and I really appreciate the fact that you've pointed out that this is an ongoing place and it's, it's, a, it's ahead of the curve for what it is. And, um, you know, and that, again, speaks to the innovation and, you know, the, the technology or the sort of that, I guess, that um, where indigenous people are. You know, we're not in history books only. We're still a part of the story and we're still telling the story. And we're also showing that, like, there's different ways you can do things. It may be slower. It may be not as fast paced. It may not be as immediate as like what the internet and, you know, social media or whatever that all brings to us today. But there's also an appreciation for that time to just sit and be with a person. And I'm thankful for this opportunity to sit across from you now for going out almost two and a half hours. And mm -hmm. this appreciation that I've grown uh, for you, which I've always had, you know, but also just now this more, profound, I guess, and more kind of like related, relating type um, position that we've had. And, um, you know, so Hotney, you know, for all the work that you've done and, and, and who you are and what you've given to me and what you've taught me, um, you know, it's, it's rare that you have an opportunity. I, that, you know, me, have an opportunity to, to really show my appreciation and gratitude. And, um, and me embarking on this podcast, um, you know, uh, project you know it's it's really it's it's significant for me to have you be a part of this because i think that your stories and your messages and your experiences are a very um, integral part to all of this so yeah go ahead okay, so i i guess in closing i just want to say how impressed i am with the way in which you're articulating what you intend to do and and are doing it i mean you're actually now doing it not just thinking about doing it um I also want to make sure that I mention that so much of what we've talked about and that I've been able to accomplish is because of my life partner, Jeanette, who has been so supportive from the very beginning of what Ganondagan is about and her creative ideas for programming and her you know, kind of fearless approach to taking on subjects that sometimes seem as though they're going to be uh, difficult for people to handle. And yet, when we've done it, people respond very positively to, to the, what they've learned from this experience that, that she has created. And so uh, we have been a very fortunate partnership in that you know, she's put up with me and, and I've learned from her. And, and as a result, we've met so many people from around the country and, and as, you, as you mentioned, from across the sea who have come and, uh, you know, presented here and, and become, um, you know, a part of the, of the quality that we've maintained. And, and that, that is remarkable. I mean, to do it now, we're going on 35 years, and doing it for 35 years um, is no easy task. You know, 
know, it, it takes a lot of energy, and, uh, and so we give a lot, but we get a lot from everybody who comes. And, and I thank you for, for giving me this opportunity to tell people a bit more about myself. There's, I've, I've always been a little bit uh, reticent to get too much into me. I am, um, I guess, just cautious. But I, I do want people to know, um, you know, uh, a fuller story about, you know, my work here and, and what brought me here and how I got here. Um, I've told bits and pieces along the way. I've usually never had anywhere like this amount of time to explain or lay out all that it has, that I've done and learned from people. But I would say to you, Anz, also, and Yahweh, for this opportunity to, to share with people. Yeah. Um, you know, this has been um, amazing for me. It's a great kickoff to this, um, this project, this campaign. I'm looking forward to the experiences as we go along. I'm sure that I will uh, circle back with you to, um, you know, ask you for advice, you know, clearly, um, direction, um, the connections that you've already given to me, you know, the people that I know are, you know, and the, the, the folks that I'm kind of targeting as my next sort of subjects are probably a direct relation to you. And um, I just look forward to being able to tell their stories and having them be able to tell their stories. And I think that, um, you know, maybe what I have to get better at about throughout this whole thing is um, leaving space, you know, for the subject matters to be able to have their, their talk and their, and their, and express who they are. And so that's that real, um, balance, I think, between, um, you know, doing this type of work is knowing when to just shut up and like sit there and listen. <laughs> and, um, you know, and just because I have a microphone doesn't mean I have to say something every time, you know? And so that's a, it's a great learning lesson and experience for me. Um, you know, and I, and I hope down the road, I mean, as this thing continues to grow, I hope that, um, more people take interest in it and they want to be a part of this project because I think there are so many amazing stories out there that need to be told, that need to be shared. And, you know, I just want to be a vehicle for that. You know, I want to be a part of that because I'm, I'm naturally curious. I'm naturally interested. I want to know. Um, it's all the questions you were afraid to ask, but now you can ask, you know, and you're not going to get hit with a stick or whatever, you know, you can just kind of like, all right, I'm just going to freewheel it a little bit. I'm going to, you know, poke and prod and see how much you're going to give me. Um, but also I want to be respectful of the people that are sharing what they're sharing, because some of the things that they will be sharing along the way could be deeply personal. Um, there could be some challenging subjects. Um, you know, I, I hope not to, you know, make too many people cry, but even there's been times that during this podcast, alone. I mean, I wanted to cry out of tears of, of joy, you know, just because of how proud I am of like what, you know, who you are and, and what this has been. And, um, you know, what a, what a great way to start off the podcast. So um, with that, you know, um, in our language, we don't have a word for goodbye, but what we say is we'll see you all again. And that is uh, so we'll see you all again. Power is in your heartbeat. Power is in your heartbeat.